Welcome to Let the Boys Kiss, the creation of queer ships, where we ask the question, is it queer baiting, queer coding, or queer canon? This week, we'll be discussing updates to previously covered ships from Leverage, Loki, Our Flag Means Death, and Good Omens. I'm Maddie. And I'm Kelsey. super episode guys it's a mega episode yes we're doing it many requests came in not for all of these properties but for a couple of them pretty (laughs) hot and heavy so we are glad to be here returning to some beloved ships to see what's been going on as we've got new seasons so what the plan is for today is we're just going to go through each of those properties, Leverage, Loki, Our Flag Means Death, and Good Omens, in that order, and check in. Just, like, talk about what happened in the season and see how we feel about it, basically. It's a pretty loosey-goosey episode today. Okay, so start with Leverage. Yes, so the ship, if you recall, is the OT3, Elliot, Hardison, and Parker, the hitter, hacker, and thief. And we left them at the end of Leverage running leverage together. And in the very last episode, they promised to be together till their dying day. And then after the show was over, the creator, John Rogers, on Twitter said that he had made his OT3 canon. So we were like, all right, it's a a real ship, everybody. Confirmed by the creator. Hope when they come back, we see it more explicitly. Let's see if we did. Yeah. Okay. so we're back. They are all still running leverage together. There's leverage internationals happening. They're running different crews across the world. And the beginning of the show is them trying to bring their former mentor leader, Sophie, back in after Nate has mm. died. He's dead. Tragically. He's not coming back. So He's dead. Very the dead. Deadest dead character you ever did see. And we get little moments in the pilot that kind of indicate that they have been working together, that they've been growing together. You know, they have their in-jokes. There are are moments where they're mimicking each other. We get some of our favorite moments, a couple damn it Hardisons from Elliot. Mm, Yep, classic. Uh, Classic. And so, yeah, the pilot is fun. It's fun to be back with our crew. I don't think we see anything to really indicate the OT3, Mm -hmm. but, you know, maybe that'll happen later in the season. Except plot twist. <laughs> yeah. Hardison's leaving. Hardison's on his way out. He's got other business he needs to take care of. He's running various important NGOs or something. So the the real life backstory of that, right, is that Aldous Hodge, the actor who plays Hardison, is just very in demand these days. Yeah, he got too busy. Scheduling conflicts. Yep. So he's in the first two episodes of season one and the last episode of season one. And then yes. in season two, he shows up again for like an episode and then he's in little bits, bits throughout. Yes. They send his character to space and occasionally they will check in with him in space. And he's just like floating and <laughs> talking yeah. to them. So yeah, they, they do what they can to keep him involved in the story, but they, it does sort of affect our threesome here when one of them is gone for most of the show. Mm-hmm. So I guess... That doesn't necessarily mean they've abandoned the OT3, right? Like the two of them could be together just missing their third person throughout the show. Is that how it plays out? No. For some reason in this season, they decide to give us a no homo lady for Elliot. He gets a girlfriend. Why? 
Elliot's never wanted a girlfriend. No. <laughs> he comes up that in one of their cases, they meet up with this, uh, is she a U.S. Marshal? She's, mm-hmm. yeah, some kind of sort of government person. Uh, law enforcement. A law enforcement person. And the two of them are like very intrigued by each other's skills. And then as the season proceeds, you find out they've sort of been keeping in touch. Oh, okay, maybe they're hanging out together. What's going on with that? Until it builds to an episode where Elliot and Parker are trapped in a, like a hurricane, basically, in the Gulf. And they land at some island and take refuge. And Elliot calls his girlfriend, the U.S. Marshal, to come pick them up. <laughs> and then it turns out, you know, there's nefarious activity happening on the island. Yeah, they, they all get have stuck. To they can't get, get stuck. They have to solve what's going on. And the Marshal joins them and they all work together. And there's much tension, really, between Parker and the girlfriend understandably so yeah parker does not like her (laughs) there is a funny moment where the girlfriend confronts parker and she says elliot said you didn't like me and parker goes yeah (laughs) i I didn't (laughs) like you parker has grown in a lot of ways since the end of the first show but she does still doesn't like lie to save people's feelings that's not what parker is all about so, yeah, she sort of is in conflict with Elliot saying, you know, we're family. Don't I get some say about who you bring into the family and that sort of thing. Uh, they do come to some sort of respect by the end of the episode because of how all the things are handled. But at the very end, we see Elliot and Parker talking about her and Elliot's like, she still bothers you. And Parker's like, not her. It's just with Maria in the picture. I'm worried you're going to want to leave all this behind. And I can't do this without you. And he says, well, that's never going to happen, Parker. So at least, you know, they're like. We're still family, yeah. which is their vibe. But there's this whole element of conflict with the new person. And you're like, right. this is a weird new thing that's happening. <laughs> Don't need it. Good news. They mm. do eventually break up because yep. it's hard to maintain a relationship with a federal cop when you are, you know, a criminal An international criminal. <laughs> Constantly as your job when your jo- job is to crime. Yeah, um, exactly. It's a t- tough relationship. I mean, you're really, he could have picked any other kind of person and it might have been a better idea, to be fair. Yes. And so Elliot's, you know, sad about it. Hardison has come back for the finale. So not, you know, for the finale. but for- <laughs> He's like, I'm here, guys, for the finale. For the finale. And they're consoling Elliot. Elliot's like, I just wish I could find someone that I could talk to about my life and then they do just the rudest possible thing (laughs) they have Mm -hmm. parker and elliot or parker and hardison tell him we know it's not the same thing parker says this but hardison and i are always going to be here for you forever and we'll always be together and elliot says till our dying day which is what they said in the finale of the original show and she says no past that even after we get the robot bodies and then they start talking about how they're planning to live forever forever in robot bodies. Yeah, that's not the rude part. That's cool. Yeah, that part's awesome. <laughs> the rude part is the, I know it's not the same, but we'll always be friends. It's like, what What are we doing here? That's Come not on. the dynamic we were promised, John. Rogers? John Rogers. What happened, Rogers? <laughs> okay, so that's season one. And then it gets even ruder in season two. So once again, Hardison is not around for many episodes. Yep. But there is an episode where he and Parker have a date night that Elliot makes food for them for their date night. Didn't invite yep. Elliot yep. to they don't the invite date Elliot. night. It's messed up, guys. And then 
the whole thing, of course, is like has to turn it into a con somehow. And so then one of them does invite Elliot and he's like, I'm going to end up getting kicked and punched on this one, aren't I? On your date. And you're like, damn, <laughs> like, yeah. why is he not on the team with them? Yeah. Why is he not on the date? And then part of the like emotional arc of this episode is this is right before Hardison is about to go to space. Yeah. And Parker clearly doesn't want him to go in part because like she won't be able to get to him to help him if he needs help. But at a certain part, they get locked in a vault together and they're like, come on, we're Parker and Hardison. Partisan. And you're like, you have a joint name that doesn't include Elliot? That was no. like a stake to the heart. <laughs> Absolutely not. I reject this wholeheartedly. Partisan. Gross. Yeah. Come on, guys. <laughs> I told you up. that, like, I I took notes kind of erratically as I was watching the shows. And so I just have a note in my notes app. It just says, partisan. Boo. <laughs> that about says it all, I think. I hate it. I mean, fair enough. It's lame. Why have we siloed the two of them off? So it's just like a real bummer. I mean, the not partisan mean. not being around obviously changes all of the dynamics and then every time he is around, they're like, oh, we have to use this time to deal with the, his relationship with Parker because, mm-hmm. you know, they want to get like the emotional stuff that they can get out of him being there. But then it just means there's like no Hardison and Elliot. And the two of them are so great together. Yeah, I think the thing that sucks is even outside of the OT3, like regardless of the status of the OT3, yeah. Elliot Hardison is just a very fun dynamic. And Absolutely. so to get almost none of it because they're so heavily privileging the Parker Hardison relationship is a bummer. Yeah. It's sad. I miss them. Yeah, me too. But who knows what will happen in season three? Season three. They have just been renewed for a season three. And maybe Aldous Hodge will be in it more. The DC universe has collapsed. (laughs) Although he still Um, seems quite busy. Yeah. But I don't know. I just hope we can like revitalize their dynamic because they're so fun. What a fun group of people. Yeah. Mm. Not cool, John Rogers. We feel a little, a little lied to. A little bit. A little little bit. Now, it is maybe worth saying that they've introduced... Maybe as a substitute, an unacceptable, an unacceptable substitute. substitute. <laughs> More queer content in the in the reboot in the in the redemption. So mm-hmm. we do get a couple of cases where the clients are a queer couple. So there's an episode where they're helping a pair of farmers who are an interracial couple of gay men. I loved the farmers; they were fabulous. Yes, and then there's a, a episode that I also really enjoyed where they're helping an older woman who turns out to be, like, the greatest grifter of all time. Yeah, she's awesome. And her whole backstory is she fell in love with a, a woman and they were fleeing from that woman's abusive husband and sort of everything falls out from there. But that was a lovely episode, too. Mm-hmm. And we also have a new character this season because they needed someone yes. to step into Hardison's hacking shoes. And so his... Can't have a crew without a hacker. Yeah, his foster sister, Brianna, is the one who steps in and she is queer. It is not confirmed if she is a lesbian or what. But she, throughout the early parts of it, makes several failed references to, you know, people like us and like who you love and that kind of thing. And you're like, are we just yeah. going to leave this subtext the whole way? But they do not. It's true. In one of the episodes, she meets this other, like, nerd girl that she really hits it off with, and the two of them do get together, but then 
later it turns out they broke up. She goes on other dates with other women. And so you do get sort of some nice romantic queer Mm -hmm. storylines. But I agree with you, much as it was nice, it does feel like they were like, well, we got to give them something. (laughs) Yeah, now that we're fully taking away the OT3, we know the fans wanted it. We know we're we're aware of it. John Rogers has been hyping it up, but we're not going to do it. So Mm -hmm. maybe this will be okay. And it's like, it's good, but it's not okay. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. So... I mean, honestly, there's really not that much more to say about this because there's so little of them in the show. So we do have some quotes because we demand answers. What were these? What were these creative teams thinking as they went along with this? And weirdly, we don't really have anything from John Rogers, who is the one who should be defending himself after saying that he made the OT3 canon and then Mm -hmm. uncanoning them. But we do have some quotes from the EP director, Dean Devlin, and the showrunner, Kate Rorick, about generally this dynamic and and kind of the Elliot storyline more than anything. So they asked, what does Elliot's failed relationship mean for how he looks at what he's doing with leverage? Kate says that relationship threw into relief for him that his job is incredibly important for him, but he actually does want to find somebody that he could share his life with, which is not something that he's really thought of it's been just come and go before and then dean devlin says let's face it for better or worse he's the third wheel in that relationship with parker and hardison and rorick rorick says sometimes you need the third wheel for stability though and it's like you guys don't get them at all yeah (laughs) the third wheel in the relationship with parker and hardison excuse you yeah, they're not a bicycle. They're a stool. <laughs> exactly. I do like her saying you need the third wheel for stability. It's but, true. But come on. I mean, th- if that's how you're reading the entire first run of Leverage, is that like they're sort of just wishing that he wasn't around so they could be alone together? <laughs> then we're not reading it the same way. I would like to remind everyone that in the series finale of Leverage, when our OT3 are in the back of the van seemingly dying... Who's in the middle? Elliot. 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 Holding Parker's hand on one side and Hardison's hand He's on the, the other. He's the glue that holds the whole thing together. Okay. Okay, guys. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. Now, they did say, I guess this was their intention. Not sure how well it was carried off. They do ask, I was happy to see the bond, as in the bond between the three of them, highlighted in the finale. The until our dying day reminded me of the fake death in the original finale. And Devlin says, that was to try and give a window of what it was like when these three guys were on their own. And to show that relationship, that trifecta remains as strong as ever, if not stronger. Mm. Mm. <laughs> Don't really feel like you're carrying through on that, Devlin. Nope. Nope. <laughs> the bond's as strong as ever, except that Elliot is a third wheel in their relationship. Doesn't make sense. Doesn't add up. It it doesn't add up. And I just want to say, I find it fascinating that they're like, Elliot's never considered if he wanted a relationship before when he is a thoroughly middle-aged man at this point who has spent the last decade of his life with these people. And at the end of the first season, they all decide what they want to do with their lives and then they go off and do it. Yeah, it's... It's worth saying, who knows how old the character of Elliot is. The actor is in his 50s. (laughs) So it feels a little late to be like, 
huh, do I want a relationship? Do I want someone I could share my life with? And it's like, or do I already have two people I am sharing my life with? Question mark, question mark. I don't know. It it suffers a little bit from that sort of thing that happens a lot with shows that are rebooted many years later. They just sort of ignore the intervening time and everyone picks up exactly where they were when you left or even like earlier, (laughs) like before they got the closure of whatever the finale is. Right. Yeah. There are some emotional character arcs in this reboot where you're like, I thought we already did this. Yeah, like I thought, we all handled this, we learned, we grew. <laughs> like, we're still having to deal with that? Okay. So I just, I mean, I get where it comes from. People are like, well, these are the characters, and these are the characters they want to see. And honestly, it's a lot more work to imagine the time and, and life and growth that they've gone through in the intervening time. But it's still just a sort of like, it is yeah. a little unsatisfying because stuff that we thought was concluded is unconcluded and things that were maybe okay for them at the time in their life when they joined Leverage are not really okay for the time of their life that they're in now. <laughs> like, they shouldn't yes. be feeling and experiencing those same things. So that's what we have from our creators. Again, John Rogers is is missing from this conversation. In terms of fans, I did find a Tumblr post where someone was a talking about... Post. It was about the OT3 being decanonized. And there were some responses in the comments to that post where people were agreeing that, like, John Rogers understood what OT3 meant. Otherwise, what would he what did he mean when he said that he made them canon? It's you don't yes. you can't be like, I made them canonically friends. It's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we know. <laughs> it's like, yeah, they we're friends the whole time. Thank you. Yeah. And feeling like, you know, the show didn't follow up on what John Rogers was saying extra textually. Yeah. So I think mm -hmm. it's not just that they weren't like confirmed, confirmed in these new shows. There's a way to leave it as subtext and still have it be, you know, agree with what John Rogers said. Right. Like the three of them can still be a unit in the way that they were towards the end of the original run of leverage without them right. making out or something <laughs> but instead they explicitly were like let's separate elliot from the two of them let's get elliot his own relationship blah 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 and you're like oof this was yes, tough let's give elliot a girlfriend the date night episode could have been them having a night out together which they fucking would if hardison's about to go to space you don't think the three of them are gonna want to hang out together yeah so, yeah, there was a way to do it. Because I, I think the person points out, or one of the comments points out in that Tumblr post, that this isn't, like, a very sexy show. People aren't making out with people all over the place. It's fairly <laughs> no. chased yes. throughout. I don't think Parker and Hardison even kiss at any point in the in the reboot. And so, you know, so. we didn't need the, all three of them to kiss if none of them were going to kiss. Like, it's right. not necessary. No. <laughs> it's unnecessary. But it's more about just the idea of them as a unit, which is what you feel like they are by the end of the first show. And now them yes. being this sort of fractured thing where it's like, well, at least we'll always be friends. <laughs> and yeah. you're like, ouch. <laughs> and that Elliot is missing something from his life that the other two have. Right. And they leave him still missing something by the end of the second season, right? Because they're, they're like, oh, this is a new thing Elliot has decided he wants but will not ever get, maybe, because it's so hard to have a relationship when you're in leverage. And you're like, yikes. Poor Elliot. Honestly. Damn. 
And I'm just thinking about that Christian Kane tweet now where he's like, no one cares what happens to Ellie. And you're like, ow, Christian. <laughs> oh, Elliot. Oh, man. We all care what happens he to was, Elliot. He was so deep voice raspy. I think at the be- more so at the beginning of the first season. Yes. I was like, you've been hanging out with Jensen Ackles way too much, sir. Right? They are friends. He's been yeah. learning his and Misha's voices from Supernatural. Right. And you're like, oh no. <laughs> you're allowed to just all. talk normally. You don't have yeah. to. You don't have to growl. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So one thing that we did and we're going to do for all of the things we're covering is check in with the fic. See what's happened in the fandom since we last talked about it and see, you know, what's bubbled up in the time since the, the reboot or the new season started. So there's been a pretty good growth of fix since we did Leverage. And Leverage was maybe like our seventh, eighth episode in season one. It's been a little while. It's been a while, yeah. So when we covered it last time, there were 1,800 total fix that we found. Now there's 9,100. That's a pretty substantial growth, but we love to see it. And right now about 2,300 are are OT3. And so we sort of split duties on the fic. I read two of them. You read two of them. So I'm going to just talk through what this one is. So this one's called The War Outside Our Door Keeps Raging On by Spinning Infinity. And so, yeah, this is the most kudos fic since the reboot premiered. And it actually is, I think, really interesting in light of this conversation. So... The, the premise of it is Hardison is about to leave again on one of his side missions. And Elliot has gotten up in the morning to make him a good breakfast before he goes. And Brianna gets up and is kind of chatting with him. And she ends up asking, like, what's the nature of his relationship with Hardison and mm. Parker? Yeah. And she sort of tricks him into thinking, like... Hardison has revealed everything to her and their entire foster family. <laughs> they already told me everything. All I need yes. you to do is confirm it. Yes. And he falls for it and he's like, he reveals the nature of their relationship. And she's like, that's great. And he's like, he's a little embarrassed, but she's like, of course, it's it's cool. I just didn't know. There's a really funny line, too, where she talks about how, like, Part of their family thinks this is happening. Part of their family doesn't even think he's real. But to her, it sounded, it, it, Hardison made it sound like he was dating both Batman and Catwoman at the same time, which is like such a Hardison way of framing things. It really is. And she was like, but exactly I found that fanfic that he wrote on LimeJournal. So I thought it was just that. So that was very sweet. And then it's interesting because towards the end of it, Hardison wakes up says good morning to Elliot, calls him baby before he sees Brianna and kind of is like, baby sister? And Elliot's like, she knows, knows. I told her. (laughs) And there's a moment where Hardison is affectionate with Elliot and Parker is like still asleep. So she doesn't physically appear in the in the fic. And I think, you know, we do want our OT3 to be together. But what really is missing from these reboots is the Hardison and Elliot component of the relationship. So for this fic to kind of come in and be like, No, truly, it's all three ways. And the part that might make it might make them not want to pursue it. The the gay part of it, right, is like, no, it's all it's all here. So it was very sweet. That's lovely. Very cute fic. It was kind of funny, though. So we went to a Starsky and Hutch fan convention uh, a few months ago. And there was someone at the convention who was Scottish, and she was talking about how sometimes she'll read fics about British properties and be like, this was written by an American and it takes her out of it. 
This fic was clearly written by a non-American. They refer to a cutting board as a chopping board at one point. They refer to the top of the range where Elliot's cooking as the hob. Yeah, this is and a British person. <laughs> this is a British person. Uh, and I think at one point, Elliot talks about them hogging the bedclothes. Bedclothes. British people are straight out of Charles Dickens novels. Nothing has changed there in hundreds so, like, of years. Very, very sweet fic. I liked it a lot, but like you, you are reading, you're like, this is not an emotion. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I find that lots of times when I'm reading fic. Like, yeah. British people always have tells. <laughs> they're like, oh boy. Oh, yeah. We're yeah, talking yeah. about walking on the pavement right now? No, no, no. <laughs> no, no, no. And I, it, to be fair, right, but the person was saying at the Terrace can touch, it goes both ways. So yes. if we say sidewalk and it's supposed to be in British, it takes them out. But I just, I was like, I got to chopping board and I was like, what? Well, I, it's funny to experience that because sometimes it's not like, some are obvious tells, like if they'd said hob, yeah. you'd be like, okay. But yeah. some are like, chopping board, you're like, ah, hmm. <laughs> like, like something's going Is on here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> There's something happening and then you start like looking for more clues <laughs> where are great you work spinning infinity yeah. i liked it it was good that sounds incredibly charming and i like bringing brianna into it i did really like brianna we didn't talk about the new characters we also didn't talk about noah wiley who's delightful a great great addition, addition to the show both as an actor and a performer but also conceptually he's a lawyer so to have a lawyer on the squad like yeah. it really works from a storytelling perspective also mm-hmm. which is helpful but yeah Brianna's great too the show is still a lot of fun just sure. you know in I mean, general it's a heist a week like what's not to <laughs> <Yeah>. like <laughs> and it's interesting to see them like address the issues of today and sort of the the technological advancements that have occurred like how they handle all of yeah. that but. because the show has always been about like you know, deconstructing capitalism and, you know, the, the various things that come with that. But now I have heard John Rogers talk, not about the OT3, but about like how, you know, for, from eight years ago when we left the show, things are infinitely worse now. Like the things people are getting away with are absolutely crazy. And and they talk about this in the show, like the stuff that people were doing to skirt laws before, they don't even have to do now because the stuff they're doing is just not illegal. <laughs> like they've con- yes. they've taken such control of, of the systems that regulate everything that now it's like they can do this sort of stuff without even having to hide it. Yeah. So, Depressing, yeah. but still... Fun show. <laughs> fun show. <laughs> fun actors. Good heists. Stars. Good good, good guest stars. Absolutely. But, you know, what happened to the OT3? That John Rogers promised was safe. He said, your OT3 is safe. Those were the words out of his mouth. Mm, okay. So for each of these, we're going to do a queer baiting check. Our last episode, we... Gave John Rogers the benefit of the doubt and said it was queer canon, word of God. Yep. Where are we now? Baiting, baiting, baiting. Yes, so baited. (laughs) It's a classic case of queer baiting where we trusted the creator and then he betrayed us. It is classic. It is classic. You're like, I won't trust anyone ever again. And then someone does something and you're like, maybe they seem reasonable and nice. (laughs) <laughs> lied to so it went from canon to queer baiting do you want to rank it on our scale I, I mean I gotta go five at this point you can't confirm something and then unconfirm it that's what I'm saying <laughs> it's 
it's messed up. It's not like he'd be like, oh, I was just hinting, teasing, whatever. He literally used the word confirmed. <laughs> it's like, come on. Cool. Queer baiting out of five. You better say something, John Rogers. <laughs> Defend yourself, Rogers. Or fix it in season three, which I will still watch. Yeah, sure. <laughs> okay. Well, that's leverage. Hopefully we're on to, you know, less frustrating things in the next ep- shows that we're talking about. So let's move on to Loki. Loki. So our ship is Loki and Mobius. Loki is, a, you know, god of mischief. Norse guy. Mobius. Norse guy. (laughs) Uh, We left them at the end of season one, having totally fucked up the sacred timeline. Oops. (laughs) Loki's at the end of time with Sylvie, an alternate Loki who's a girl. She kills the guy who's guarding time. It's not good. Loki's gotten kicked through a time door by Sylvie. He runs into Mobius and he's like, oh no, we did a bad job. And Mobius is like, who are you? And he's like, oh, no, we've really no, done a we bad really job. We really did a bad job. <laughs> so back in season two, Mobius pretty quickly relearns who Loki is. I think there's some like time slipping shenanigans. Yeah, you happen. find out that the Mobius he was talking to is just a Mobius from before they met. And then he's sort yeah. of like jumping around in time. And, you know, uh, their dynamic is they are still so fun and bickery. They are. So fun. I said to you earlier, I forgot. I don't know how I forgot this, but the two of them are delightful together. <laughs> I mean, the actors are just having the most fun. About the show, about where we are in the MCU, blah, 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 blah. Owen Wilson and Tom Hiddleston have great chemistry. And they should do more things together because they are it. so fun. <laughs> and yeah. most of my notes about this season were just like quotes of them bickering <laughs> because they're so funny together. Delightful. So we have, you know, some moments between them. In uh, episode one, Loki is slipping through time and it seems quite painful uh, to do. It doesn't seem fun to move around in time. No. Yes. And so, you know, Mobius gets to worry about Loki. They figure out a plan for how to sort mm-hmm. of like reincorporate him, but it is very dangerous and could end up with him being gone forever. <laughs> and mm-hmm. so before this is happening, they have a moment of Loki saying to him, Mobius, if I don't make it back, and Mobius is like, you'll make it back. And then something happens where Loki disappears again and he's like, he'll make it back. <laughs> You're like, yeah, yeah but he will. And then when he does reappear, they have sort of a Falcon in the Winter Soldier style roll around. <laughs> I love you calling it a roll around. Yeah, he is sort of like pulled back from the ether into, you know, physical form and falls into Mobius's arms and they skid across the ground together. Yeah. Highly romantic. So then throughout the season, you know, plot intervenes, really. There's like a lot that they need to get done to try to solve the things that are happening with time falling apart fix the timeline exactly but the two of them are you know buddies throughout the whole thing traveling on their journeys together they have various adventures at one point mobius tries to get them to ride a bicycle belt for two but loki is loki is not having it lame (laughs) they have a lot of conversations of just sort of like checking in with each other emotionally there's a time when 
they're having to interrogate a guy and Mobius loses his cool. And then afterwards they have this conversation of like, let's just talk about it. Loki's like, I know how it is when your rage overwhelms you and, you know, you just do something that you regret. And he tells the story about like, one time I was so mad at my brother and my dad that I brought all these aliens to New York City and I tried to take the whole place over. Totally lost my cool. And Mobius is like, oh, you understand. So they do a lot of bonding and like communicating nicely throughout the show. Which is lovely. Very sweet. There's a point where Loki is running into a ver- the variant form of Mobius, like who Mobius was in his original life before he got plucked from the whatever version of the timeline he was from to be a, a worker in the TVA. And it's very sweet. He's getting ready to talk to Mobius. But before he goes in to speak to him, he, he sort of fixes his hair and adjusts his coat so he looks his best. And so that's super cute. So he's a stranger and he showed up in this guy's life and he's like, okay, I know this sounds crazy, but we're actually really good friends. Like some crazy shit's going down. I need your help. I need you to come with me and I need you to trust that what I'm telling you is true. So he's trying to convince him that they are friends and they know each other. And so he says to him, you saved my life. You saw something in me that I hadn't seen myself. <laughs> and, so, and then Mobius is like, you know, are you really my friend? And Loki's like, yeah. And he, he buys it, man. It works. It's very convincing. So that's most of the show. One thing that we talked about in the last episode, which was we weren't even sure if Sylvie, his, his the variant of himself that he falls in love with seemingly in season one was coming so back. So weird. So weird. And she does come back in this season, but they seemingly abandon any sort of romantic storyline for them. Like he still cares about her and is worried about her and wants to find her. But when they reconnect, it's there's like no romantic tension. We're going to kiss now. No. Yeah. She she comes back in the least objectionable way possible. I was very surprised. Yeah. Uh, But they do put a little you know, button on it. They do have to mention that their dynamic was weird in season one. So there's a time when they're talking and like Mobius is watching them from inside a room talking to someone else. And he's talking about like, you know, there's like a lot to unpack when you're in a relationship with yourself. It's kind of a weird dynamic. And you're like, yeah, it's bizarre. I'm glad that they heard the fans say we do not like this dynamic. And they just were like, all right, heard. Even if they weren't (laughs) going to execute on Loki Mobius, they were like, all right, we can step back from this Loki's in love with himself. <laughs> yeah, we don't need that. That was That's a weird a thing. So then, yeah, like the the plot stuff happens. They get to a mm-hmm. point where they come to a solution. And the solution to all of their problems is that Loki basically becomes the guy at the end of time, holding all of the sacred timeline together. Yeah, he makes Yggdrasil, the tree from Norse mythology, where all the different realms hang out. Yep, and then all of the people from the TVA, if they so choose, can go just like have a life on the sacred timeline and be a normal person. And Mobius does decide to go and at least see what his life would be like. (laughs) So he goes down and he's watching himself with his sons at the end. And then Sylvie Mm -hmm. comes and the two of them have this moment of like bonding I guess and Sylvie says to him it's kind of weird that Loki isn't here so the problem is Loki goes to become the tree of time or whatever uh, we want to call it and then yeah we have the beats where everyone's deciding what to do with their life so like 
with Loki and Mobius being the best dynamic of the show, you would mm-hmm. want them to have like a good, meaty, emotional final goodbye scene. Yeah. But we don't get that sort of like on either end. When Loki goes to become the tree, there's no like real meaty goodbye scene. And then when Mobius says goodbye, he's saying goodbye to Sylvie. And you're like, oh, really Mobius care about and them Sylvie together. don't care about each other. Like <laughs> they don't really know each other like that. Um, it, would be, it would have been better if he was saying goodbye to the... I never remember her... Because she has a designation. She's just a, the, no, a letter and yeah. a number. Yeah, but that the, time cop person that he yeah, had most of the lady time with. cop. They set it up a little bit. She is the one that he tells he's not going to stay with her in their job. He's going to go mm-hmm. see what's going on as a human. But the, right. it does, it's not like the end beat. And so that it doesn't have the emotional gravity of it. And then the end beat is this Loki or not Loki, this Mobius Sylvie thing. And you're like, this dynamic is not what needed to be serviced at the end of the show. No. I get that you think Sylvie is like a stand in for Loki, but she ain't. She's really not. And so, yeah, you know, it's just a little it's unsatisfying from a character perspective, the ending. Of the show. Well, yeah, and that's not even to mention what is most unsatisfying to me, which is that the show is about Loki comes into it as this guy who just wants power and like in in the words of the show wants a throne, right? That's all he wants is to rule. And then the show is about him discovering that's not what he wants. He he wants friends and people who care about him that he cares about and like to live a life, really, that which is what he learns from Mobius. And then at the end of the show, what he gets is a throne and to be alone. <laughs> and you're like, ouch. <laughs> That's a rough ending. So, yeah, the ending was kind of like a womp womp. Womp womp. But on the other hand, the show did give us more Kiwi Kwan. And so how mad at it can I Kiwi be? Kiwi Kwan is so good in it. That is perfect casting. That character is made for him. So good. Love OB. Honestly, I found most of the show to be very charming and fun. Leaving aside the ending, I think season two is probably better than season one. Season one had good moments, mm-hmm. but was like kind of uneven in the episodes. Well, it, it's, it's, it always sucks when the sh- uh, something gives you like a major female character and you're like, I just don't need her. And like there's yeah. more Sylvie in season one than there is in season two. And it's more focused on her. And she's like... Not what works for me. Yeah. But it's not her fault. Like, if they had used her a different way, it probably wouldn't have been a problem. But the fact that she's there to be, like, in a romance with him was, like, no. No. (laughs) Ill-advised. Not loving this. And so, you know, I think their adventures were fun this season. I think Mm -hmm. the narrative of the timelines falling apart and what do we need to do and we have to choose between... A sacred timeline where people don't have free will or basically just like everything ending and dying. (laughs) And what are we going to do about that? I think that's big stakes. It's very interesting. And they did such interesting emotional stuff with Loki and Mobius throughout. But then I just feel like the end note is so weird and doesn't pay off anything that they've set up through the season. So So, what are you going to (laughs) do? It's not perfect. But Kiwi Kwan, come on. Kiwi Kwan, come on. Okay, so we should let the one of the EPs, Kevin Wright, mm-hmm. you know, say, what, what were you guys thinking while you were doing yeah. this? What's the deal? So the in an interview, they asked about the Loki-Mobius relationship and just that, like, people 
you know, in the context of people having shipped them, what did you guys intend for them? Was that relationship always meant to be platonic? And he says, I think platonic is the word. I think we don't see enough platonic, healthy, beautiful relationships between men and TV. And I think that is why that relationship was so beautiful and disarming to people. Is because how often do you see two men being able to open up and actually speak about their feelings? And I think that that was something in that first episode that Mobius was able to do really beautifully. He was basically saying, I see you. I see the pain that you're in. I see the bad things that you did. That's okay. I'm not judging. Let's talk and find a way to you becoming the best version of yourself. And I think that was exciting. And of course, he also gives the like, but knowing that people are shipping the fans, <laughs> I have no problem with that. So he says, so I think it's beautiful that people could read that relationship in other ways. It was never the intention, but also we can't get into Loki's head. And Loki as a character is bisexual and gender fluid. And I don't know, but it wasn't something that we were ever exploring, I would say. <laughs> I love no, I love, I love an uh, EP that's just like, you know, how can I know? I'm, I'm not the know. character. What, I'm in Loki's head? I don't know what he's thinking. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, who knows what that guy's up to? <laughs> we also have a very brief quote from Tom Hiddleston where he says, I think Mobius is Loki's friend, and I don't think Loki's ever had a friend before. Ain't that the truth? Yeah. That's the key to their whole thing, really. That's why it's like he's never had a friend. Having a friend changes his entire life, as he says, right? Like he's never seen himself yeah. as the type of person that people could care about. And God, so that... It's it's really hard. <laughs> that's so sad. Type of person that anyone could care about. Well, buddy, what are you supposed to take from never ever having a friend in your entire life? Oh, bud. Oh, bud. So honestly, like, I think it's great. I love that they were like, we want a close emotional friendship between these guys. We want them to talk about their feelings. We want to, you know, attack toxic masculinity. Sure, great, great, great. Big fan. In terms of what's happening with the fic in this one, last time we covered it, which was fairly recently over, you know, the course of the podcast, there were 8,000 fics. About 3,000 of them were Loki slash Mobius. And now there are 11,000 fics with about 4,000 being Loki slash Mobius, which is kind of a proportional growth. Yeah. So this fic was also pretty short and sweet. This fic takes place in the space where Loki is trying to get the alternative version of Mobius, who's like in his normal timeline as a dad and jet ski seller. To, we were uh, robbed of the two of them never riding a jet ski together. I mean, it really should have been a rule of three joke where he's like this tandem bike and Loki's like, no. And then it could have been like, I don't know, a horse together. And Loki's yeah. like, no. Other no. <laughs> than a jet ski together. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Ooh, or they could have been in a motorcycle on a sidecar. Anyway. Oh, my God. That's adorable. <laughs> anyway. Anyway. So it's the part where Loki is now gone to his house and he sees him, like, arguing with his children to pick up their toys and not, like, set stuff on fire. And he goes up to him to talk to him. And basically, instead of what happens in that scene where he intimates that he does want a jet ski and, you know... Mobius showing him one of his jet skis that he needs to sell for, you know, to get a little bit more cash. Mobius gives him a bit of a line and says, like, oh, are you available? No. <laughs> and Loki's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> and it, the whole story is about Loki realizing that if this Mobius maybe has, you know, more feelings for him, maybe his Mobius has more feelings for oh. him. And maybe all the little signs of nervousness that he's seeing in this Mobius as he's trying to flirt with him more overtly are signs, you know, in his Mobius. 
And so sort of by the end of the interaction, they do agree to go out and, and get a drink together at a local diner. But then Obi, the alternate version Obi, comes through the doorway to be like, I've built a time pad. Yeah. You're like, damn it, Obi. They were That's just the getting the somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> Although I I love, I mean, it's the same, it's the exact same beat in this fic as it is in the show where Loki's like, oh, you did that really quickly. And he's like, well, I don't know if 18 months is quickly. And then there was a part where my wife left me. Oh, poor OB. Alternate OB is so sad, too, when he wants to be a best-selling author and there's that whole thing with him in the bookshop. Yeah. Oh, Oh, that is sad when he's just like trying to get people to be interested in his book. I like that trope of like this person who's very talented at this one thing, but they want to be talented at this thing they're not talented at. Yeah. (laughs) So he's like telling when when Loki meets him and he's like, wait, you're a writer in this universe? And he's like, well, yeah, when I'm not, you know, being a PhD in whatever physics. At Stanford or wherever I am in in theoretical physics. (laughs) Yeah. You're like, oh, okay, you do still have useful skills. Great. So, yeah, Loki. What did we say last time about the queer baiting? Last time we gave it a four, but not so much based on what they did with Loki and Mobius and more based on the whole thing they did where Loki stated he was bisexual and then seemingly went out of his way to be interested in a female version of himself. Not just yep. himself. So many options of himself who yeah, are also male. Yeah, there are so many hymns who were male. There were like lots and lots of male hymns and one female I hymn. I mean, we said it in the episode. I'll say it again. Richard E. Grant is right there. A him and Richard E. Grant would be fucking great. Yeah. <laughs> but no. And so I think we said in the at the end of that episode that like, if they can either continue with Sylvie, because we weren't sure if Sylvie's going to be coming back or like, I think we made a joke about what if season two is just him going through multiple timelines, only kissing women. Like, how are they going to play <laughs> out? Episode. Yeah, his by his stated bisexuality, and so I I feel less upset now that they've dropped any sort of romantic storyline yeah. out of the show. I'm not upset at all by this season in a queer baiting way. I'm like, there's no romance at all in yeah. any of this season of the show. And so then right. you're like, okay, like, I can't be being queer baited if there's like no anything happening. <laughs> it's just a yeah. bunch of people being pals. Running <laughs> yeah. around, trying to save time. Yeah. And I'm like, all right, good for them. I hope they yeah. get some found family. But then mm-hmm. they don't because Loki has to live forever and be a time tree. Poor guy. <laughs> so sad. <laughs> So I don't know. Maybe we just drop it down on the scale to like a two because he yeah. still said he was bisexual and they didn't do anything about it. Right. But like, that's fine. People can be bisexual and not do anything about it. A hundred percent. Yeah. hundred <laughs> percent. So I'm with you. It's a two. I would say to me, this show feels in season two, especially yes. just like the perfect show for queer shippers, like people who are interested in extra textual shipping this show is made for it. Like, they're never going to do anything romantic, but you don't expect them to do anything romantic. Like, that doesn't even fit within the bounds of the show, really. They're giving you this really delightful dynamic with these two guys that you could build something on or not. And they're not doing anything to contradict you within the confines of the show. So it's just like, run wild, people. Have a great time. Fun. Right <laughs> that Mobius Loki. They're so fun together. They're really fun together. If you can capture their voices, please write stuff with them because come on, delightful. I really would love to see them 
in things together. Honestly. Do you think uh, Tom Hiddleston will ever appear in like a Wes Anderson situation? Why the hell not? I mean, Wes Anderson (laughs) just like calls up an entire phone book of actors for every new movie that he does. He's never done it. And obviously Owen Wilson will appear in a Wes Anderson situation. So I don't know. I think that's a good idea. I think Owen should be mentioning that to Wes as an idea for the next thing. Me and Tom. Me and Tom. Buddies. Bring and Tom. Can we be buddies in something? Yeah. (laughs) They're very, very fun together. Loki, Loki, Mm -hmm. Loki. Loki, Loki, Loki. Okay. Now, on to another one with even more to talk about, if you can believe it. It is yes, one of the, one of the requested ones means death. If we're being honest, we didn't get too many nudges about leverage and Loki. No, but our flag means death was was nudged about. So yes. here we are. What is happening in this show? So we've got our ship, Steed, the gentleman pirate Bonnet, and Edward Blackbeard Teach. When we left them, sad times. They had broken up. Ed and Steed had gotten arrested by the British. They had agreed to run away together. Yeah. And then Ed was like, meet me down at the beach. We'll get in this boat. We'll run away together. And Steed did not show up. Ice he went cold, back man. to his wife. He went back to his wife. Can you believe this shit? But before we get to the end of the show, Steed realizes that, like, being with his wife is not the place for him. Not... Not not because she's also fallen in love with someone else. And, yeah. You know. But, but he realizes because he, realizes he, he too is in love he's with someone in love. else. Yeah. Yes. And Ed, meanwhile, is just, just gone. He's so Going sad. Going through it. He's, at first he's sad and then he gets angry. Mm-hmm. It's easier to feel uh, anger than sadness, you know? Sad is hard. That's a hard yeah. emotion. Yeah. And so when we come into season one or season two, the beginning of season two, Steed is on his way to try to get back to, to Ed. We see him writing love letters and bottles and throwing them into the ocean in his sort of whimsical way that Steed would do. <laughs> yes, very And Steed. we see Ed wiling out. He's gotten very cruel, not only to the people that they are capturing, but to his own crew, some of which are Steed's former crew, some of which are his former crew. And it's just a bad time on the ship, really. It's become quite toxic. <laughs> it's yeah. not a sustainable situation on the ship. So, you know, he's Ed's going through it in various ways. They are doing all sorts of, you know, pirate raids on ships just to keep himself occupied. They do some really bad shit to people who are getting married on a ship. And Ed takes the two wedding cake toppers with him. And then... <laughs> He dresses up the little bride as himself, and the groom has blonde hair like Steed. Yeah. <laughs> it's like playing with the cake toppers. And you're like, oh no, he is it's in a so tough sad. spot. <laughs> and then Izzy, who, if you'll recall from the first season, is someone who tried to manufacture a split between Steed and Ed because he did not like what Steed was doing to Ed. He wanted Ed to be Blackbeard. Mm-hmm. He is regretting it at this point because, oof, Blackbeard is is not having a good time. <laughs> and so he's trying to talk to Ed and, like, get on his level because they're friends. They've known each other a long time. And he makes the mistake of saying to Ed, don't you think we should talk it through? Which is a steed line. 
Steed always mm-hmm. says, let's talk it through with the crew. <laughs> so because of this, Ed loses it. He yeah. turns on Izzy. He shoots him in the leg. He tells everyone that they should dispose of his body. And <laughs> it's like pretty bad. This is one of his oldest friends in the world. And he's yeah. like ready to kill him. <laughs> You're like, oh, oh, no, that's <laughs> not good. And also, as further trauma for the crew, Jim, who is still with him, has struck up a bit of a romance with a woman on the ship named Archie. And Ed cannot take the side of them being, you know, romantic together. And so he tries to force them to fight to the death because he says, all love dies. So that's about where he is emotionally at the beginning of the show. It's not it's not great times for Ed. So eventually the crew turns on him, as you might expect. Oh, yeah. Because he's not being a good captain. No. And they beat him and then they abandon his body on a beach. And Ed has this experience where he's run into like his old captain who had used to be cruel to him. And, you know, they're they're on this island together. And then Ed realizes that he's dying. And it's <laughs> he's, not, like, he's not really on I'm an not island. not actually on the beach. I'm in a yes. coma. He's in a coma, and we have a classic coma episode. One I of my love favorite a tropes. Coma episode. Ugh, not used enough anymore. Nope. Love it. And so in this episode, Ed has to make the classic decision of whether to live or die. So mm-hmm. he ends up getting like thrown off a cliff and he's in the water drowning. And he's, you know, just ready to let go until he sees Steed. Steed. As a beautiful merman. He's a, a gorgeous merman. Shiny merman. And he decides to live. He decides to swim to Steed and to not die in his coma. Yeah. And part of what has made Steed appear to him in this coma is that Steed has found his body in real life and mm-hmm. is there calling out to him, you know, come back to me, Ed. Don't mm-hmm. die. And so he wakes up and, and there they are. Stare at each other, right? Face to face, unexpectedly. And Steed is like, hoping all will just be forgiven somehow. Maybe a kiss. Yeah, maybe a maybe kiss. A kiss. <laughs> I just brought my lost love back from the, the, you know, death, basically. Like, we're going to reunite with a kiss. It's going to be great. And instead, Ed headbutts him. <laughs> so yeah. things He's get bad. off to a shaky start. He's upset. <laughs> Understandably so. Yeah. He was abandoned. <laughs> So the crew is not open to bringing Ed back on the ship. No. Because mm. of all the stuff he did. Um, <laughs> and so they exile him and he's wandering on this island. But the crew is also taking a bit of shore leave, essentially. And both he and Steed end up at the home of Mary Reed and Anne Bonnie, who yes. are in a relationship together and end up having dinner with them. And sort of, you know, Mary and, and Anne are like, were you two together? <laughs> yeah, because there's like clearly something going on with the two of yeah. them. But then there also is the fact that Mary and Anne are both like crazy pirate ladies who are now living a life selling antiques on an island. So they're yes. trying to like keep the spice of their relationship alive in various ways. <laughs> and those mm-hmm. various ways do not positively affect Ed and Steed, <laughs> to no. say the least. They include stabbing each other mm-hmm. one of them i forget what was it Anne, Anne. who kisses steed yeah. yep <laughs> just and kisses you know. steed just to be like you know I'm, hopefully mary will catch us basically yes <laughs> and so they, they 
present this vision to Ed and Steed of these two people who loved each other, but for some reason are crazy now. (laughs) So they are, you know, it kind of drives them together, right? Because they do things where both Ed and Steed together are like, you guys are wild. Well, they want to go back out and be pirates. So setting their house on fire is like the excuse they need to not stay in an antique shop anymore. But yeah, it does sort of throw the conflict between Ed and Steed into relief and like, well, maybe we can get past this. Right. Maybe we can. And and they've sort of had some conversations throughout the dinner when they've been left alone together about, you know, what Steed got scared and he ran away and the two of them were moving so quickly and they have this conversation about like, we're both whim prone. <laughs> so it's probably not a good idea for us to just like follow our whims and run off to China together. Who knows what would have happened? And so they discuss it a little bit they get back to a place where they're like all right maybe we can work this out and meanwhile they have brought along with them buttons from the ship who is trying to transfigure himself into a bird (laughs) he has gotten a spell that he can use to change into a bird and so he's looking for a vessel (laughs) he comes on the island with them to get a vessel that he could use to perform the spell and then as they're leaving he is able to perform the spell and he turns into a bird but not well ed is present so he's he's talking to him but uh, not before he's he's trying to give ed some advice about the relationship and ed is like people don't change buttons not even into birds and then lo and behold buttons does change into a bird and ed's like hell maybe people do change (laughs) yeah i mean if you can change into a bird you can change into a better person and so you know steed he then runs into steed again and steed's like maybe i could put in a word with the crew to let you spend one more night on the ship and they're like all right and so the next episode they've let ed back on the ship but he must do a, a penance Yep, and so they've dressed him in plain clothes and yeah, put and a little like a bell sack. on him. <laughs> I love him wearing a bell, so he can't yeah. sneak up on anyone. And they ask him to give an apology, and um, also they ask if Buttons really turned into a bird, and Ed is like, "Yeah," and they're like, "Okay, okay." Did he turn into a bird or did you kill him? And he's like, he turned into a bird, and they're like, "We're still going with that." Yeah. Okay. Sure. <laughs> So, you know, they're being friends again, but maybe they're not ready to dive back into their relationship. Steed is getting advice from Ed, though, on how to be a captain again. He's getting really good advice from Izzy on how to be a pirate because he's still he's not good. He's not good. He's not a good pirate. pirate. No, but Izzy has come around on him. And so he's like willing to help Steed out, which is nice. And Ed's trying to make amends to the various members of the crew, including Mm -hmm. Lucius, who has been thoroughly traumatized in the time since he got thrown off the boat. Yes. (laughs) And so because the two of them are working together all this time, you know, they are together and they still have these same feelings for each other that they've always had. And so at one point, I think it's the episode where Steed takes the cursed outfit (laughs) by the end of it. He's still wearing the nice fancy shirt from the outfit. And so in a I lo- reversal. I love the, the curse suit part where uh, I forget which, which character is, but he's clearly having an allergic reaction to the nuts. Yes. Delightful. It's like, no, it's the curse. I think that's Frenchie, maybe? Hard yeah, it's Frenchie, I think. Um, it's the curse. But anyway, at the end, in a role reversal of a season one special moment that the two of them had, uh, Ed tells Steed, you wear fine things well, because he likes his shirt. And the two of them mm-hmm. kiss. And you're like, oh, this is nice. And then Ed is like, 
I think we're gonna need to take this slowly. Let's yeah. let's calm things down a bit. I don't. We're both whim prone. I don't want to rush off and do anything that's gonna, you know, put me back in a place where I was before, basically. Right. So you know, they they decide like we're gonna take it slow, and I think they hold hands and walk off, and that's the end of that episode, which is like quite lovely and yeah. nice. Very nice. Next episode is Calypso's birthday. I love Calypso's birthday so much. So they decide to celebrate Calypso's birthday. That's an excuse to have a party. And while they're celebrating Calypso's birthday, and it looks like a great time, another pirate shows up, Ned Lowe, who is very upset because while Ed was depressed, he broke his raiding record. Yeah, like 88 straight (laughs) raids or something like that. Not... Not on purpose, as I've mentioned, he was just bored. But Ned Lowe is very upset about this. He has his whole backstory. He's about like how... this real asshole, too. Ned Lowe is another real yeah. pirate, as most of the characters in this show are. And he was known for, like, torturing his victims and being a real son of a bitch. So, Right. But it is Bronson Pinchot, who I've not seen in a long time. No, it's I'm been very a excited to see yeah. Bronson Pinchot. Anyway, so Steed ends up killing Ned Lowe. His, the first time he's um, ever killed anyone. Yeah. And Ed brings Steed in to talk to him about it because he's like, the first kill can be, you know, really tough. I mean, my first kill was tough. Of course, it was my father. So (laughs) that complicates things. But Steed is really energized by this. And he ends up, you know, taking Ed. They sleep together for the first time. time. And now everything is different because everyone has heard that Steed has killed Ned Lowe. What a legendary kill it is. And so they go back to the pirate island and everyone wants a piece of Steve. They're like, you're mm-hmm. the guy that killed Ned Lowe? Could I get an autograph? Like everywhere he goes, they want to buy him drinks. They want to tell him stories. He's like living the high life. He basically is Blackbeard, right? Like Ed yeah. knows exactly how this goes and so it's a sort of a role reversal for them and ed is trying to give steed advice about how to handle the situation and you know like he's telling him don't drink all of the drinks that they give you and the various things that he needs to know to watch out people are going to try to kill you now right and so he's like trying to be supportive but ed is also in a place where he's kind of figuring out he doesn't want to be a pirate anymore at the beginning of the episode he wakes up from his night with steed and he throws his his pirate leathers overboard and he's like casting off the idea of being a pirate Mm -hmm. and so he's trying to support steed in this but he also doesn't really want to be around the life anymore because it's made him so unhappy for his whole life basically and so then it it becomes you know kind of a sticking point (laughs) for the two of them they diverge exactly they're they're on different paths and earlier ed in his path to to make amends and be friends with everyone has gone on a little bit of a fishing expedition with his fang formative fishing trip with where fang. He, he caught one fish and was like wow i have skills now i'm an amazing fisherman <laughs> basically yes. but also like fang gets him to like sit with himself and be quiet and be a little bit more contemplative so this is also on his like his journey to calm down he needs to calm down. He it's really does. And so, yes, yeah, Steed is now running around Mr. Big Shot. And Ed is yep. like, I'm going to go become a fisherman. And yeah, Steed like, is I like, I don't think I can do this can anymore. Fish? <laughs> he's like, I caught a fish. <laughs> so you got a fish. And he's like, you told me it was a great fish. And he's like, uh. <laughs> I was just trying to be supportive, you know. And so he, he does. He goes off to be a fisherman. So things do start going badly for Steed very quickly because 
despite the fact that he killed Ned Lowe, he he really still is. He's not good at being a pirate. He's yeah, he's not good. No, he has a lot of natural luck, but not really any skill for yes. piracy. And then we also see Ed. He's joined a, a group of people to fish with, but he can't fish. No, he doesn't know how to do it he just sort of sits around and watches them he's that person that where people are all working and you're sitting there and he's like i'm i'm managing you know like (laughs) like no you are doing nothing of value sir so he gets kicked out of his fishing collective and the the guy is like hey if there was anything you were ever good at maybe do that yeah and then meanwhile Things are, like we said, are going poorly for Steed. Another character we haven't mentioned, Jang, has shown up. She's, you know, an awesome a bunch pirate of... queen. She's she's great. And they get into a fight because she had befriended Olu a long time ago. They're sort of in a relationship. And Olu and Jim and Archie decide they're going to go with Jang. And they think it's just going to be fine. But Steed's like, how dare you, you know. Can't um... poach all my pirates. Yeah. Because, I mean, Buttons is gone. They lost the Swede to Spanish oh, Jackie. Oh, the Swede. He's, 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 he's living a great people. life. Yeah, he the is. The Swede is living a great people. life, yeah. And so he gets into a fight with Zhang, and he's losing very badly. But then, luckily for him, Zhang has taken on these clocks from this British guy. Yeah. And they all blow up because he's pulling a trick where he's actually trying to get rid of all the pirates. So anyway, they're now on the run from the British... And Ed happens to come upon the beach where they're fighting off the British. He's found Steed's letters in a bottle that Steed had written to him. Yeah. And it's so sweet. And then, just as Steed imagined at the beginning of the season, they see each other across the beach and they get to have the slow motion running into each other's arms across the beach scene. Oh, and it's so it's satisfying. So lovely. <laughs> it's so great. Lovely. So then, you know, they have to fight. Now yeah. that there's all these British, so they the three of them together are somehow able, with you know Steed not providing much help, to fight off the the British people. They reunite with all of the other pirates. Plot, plot, plot. Mm-hmm. You know they they win the day yes. and are able to escape the pirate island. And so we see the pirates about to head. Well, first I guess we should talk about Izzy. <laughs> But yeah. Izzy has been shot in one of their battle with the British, and he ends up succumbing to his wounds uh, after a very emotional scene with Blackbeard, where, yeah. you know, it's actually quite lovely <laughs> about how he apologizes to him for having held him back and, like, trying to make him embrace his darkness because he wasn't yeah. ready to get rid of the Blackbeard persona. Well, he um, talks about how we were Blackbeard. Like, Blackbeard yeah. was a creation of both Ed and Izzy's influence. Uh, it's um, very lovely and Blackbeard's like you can't or Ed is like you can't leave me you're my only family and he's like you're surrounded by family and you're like oh <laughs> it's so nice but anyway Izzy dies uh, and then the, we see the rest of the crew heading off planning like what their next adventures will be and we wonder what's going to happen with all of our people but we see that Ed and Steed are not on the ship with them. They have stayed behind on the island where they buried Izzy, and they're going to become innkeepers together. So sweet. <laughs> it's so sweet. They're opening a and b <laughs> I love it. It is adorable. Steed would be so good at keeping a and b Oh, yes. It's going to be like the highest class B&B of all time. <laughs> 
It's going to be amazing. Yeah. But that's where we leave them, right? They, they're they together. They're happy. They're hopefully going to not be they're pirates. out of the life. Yeah. It's like the dream scenario because in real life, uh, they would be about to die at this point. <laughs> like pretty much this is the end of the golden era of piracy. All yeah. of them are either going to surrender to the British or be killed very quickly. So let's hope they can make this B&B life work. I sure <laughs> do hope so. So yeah, that's that's our that's our Steed and Ed. We've got, you know, this is a very queer show. We've got all kinds of fun queer stuff happening yep. in the show. So we also, you know, get to check back in with Lucius and Black Pete. As we said, Lucius did not die when he got pushed off Thank the God. side of the boat. Yes. He did have a very bad time and, you know, is is dealing with that, but he does reconnect with Black Pete. And they sort of work through Lucius's trauma a little bit. There's a lovely part where Black Pete is frustrated with Lucius, you know, just focusing on the negative. And he's like, I keep hearing how you talk about how you almost died, but I never hear you talk about how you got to live. Oh! (laughs) And it's really nice. And it makes him reevaluate things. And he's like, you're absolutely right. I do want to focus on the positive and the fact that I'm alive and have a life to live. And so he draws a mural of him on the wall and he proposes to Black Pete and they get engaged and it's so nice. And they get married and we see some metallitage. <laughs> yeah, they they announce them as, I now pronounce you mateys. And you're like, Aww. oh my God, I love it so much. Great. They're delightful. I adore Lucius and Black Pete. What a, that relationship came out of nowhere in such a mm-hmm. fun way. Like the whole yeah. first season is obviously following the rom-com beats to build to Ed and Steed's relationship. And the Lucius and Black Pete thing, when it starts, you're sort of like, oh, okay. Like it seems like they're just hooking up, right? And so you're like, okay, cool. And then it turned into this like very lovely thing with the two of them. It's, I'm very emotionally invested in the Lucius and Black yeah. Pete story. It was very nice. And then they also Black Pete has to sort of confront Lucius about, yes, Lucius went through a lot of trauma, but it was also very traumatic for Black Pete, who was convinced that he was dead this whole time. And like, they both went through a lot. Ah, Good stuff. Good stuff. And then, yes, we also have Jim and Archie, where in season one, it seemed like they were setting up Jim and Olu. uh, The two of them do kiss. Yeah. Yep. But, you know, Jim connects with Archie while separated from Olu. And then when they come back together, they're like, I met someone else. Yeah. But to be fair, Olu also has this connection with Jang. Jang. So, yeah. So, works out. And they stay friends. Person. Yeah. Well, and and they're very close. It's more than friends, right? There's a scene where Jim has this conversation with Jang about, like, Olu really does like you and care about you and he talks about you a lot. But, like, he had to come with me. We're you know soulmates kind of like we yeah <laughs> we belong to each other he still really it's likes sort of you though. like the the Anne bonnie it made um, me think a lot about jack and Anne from black sales yeah, from black sales where they're connected even if you know romantically or sexually they want something different mm-hmm. yeah quite lovely yeah. jang is a great addition she Love rules her. she's so cool and she, that's based, uh, again, based on a real person who was this yes. Chinese woman who ran an entire fleet of pirates. She's incredibly awesome. Awesome real person. Awesome character. I love that actress's portrayal. I would say only negative of season two compared to season one. The British villain is no Rory Kinnear. Yeah, Rory Kinnear was just Bringing delightful. It. Really delightful in season one. But... 
They should have brought back Rory Kinnear to be that guy as a I triplet. really, yeah, I was going to say, I wanted there to be a third Rory Kinnear, <laughs> which would have been delightful. Keep revealing um, that he was more multiples. Right. And there's more and more of him. And he accidentally kills himself every time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the only thing I liked about the new villain was that he, when he's at first trying to befriend them and be a pirate with them, he has like this criminal signature is that he leaves a drink that is called a lime ricky because his name is is richard takes a while to put together (laughs) it's like reminiscent of just like the wet bandits from home alone or something like this the criminal wanting to leave the dumbest possible calling card i love that turning all the faucets we're the wet bandits (laughs) but yeah i mean all in all Delightful season. I think they mm-hmm. handled the emotional arcs really well. They It was sort of this sl- slow burn of Ed having to heal from the things that have happened, the abandonment of Steed, and also the, you know, like, figuring out, sorting through the trauma of having been Blackbeard, too, is a big part of his journey, right? Like, yeah. how it has affected him to be this pirate whether or not he wants to do that (laughs) with his life because of how it makes him feel and like having to make choices about what he wants to do and then Steed making the same choices and whether or not those are going to work together, right? Are they going to be able to move in the same direction? And so I hope so. I hope they really like running that in. (laughs) Me too. It was lovely. And I have to say, the Mm -hmm. Izzy stuff I thought was so good this season. Izzy made me cry yeah. multiple times this season. He was fantastic. And that actor is just great. Love really Izzy. Good. And he has a beautiful voice. He does. Oh, my God. At at the party that they have, they, so already, what's his name? Wee John? Wee something? Yeah. Is dressing up as Calypso as, like, part of the party festivities. And so when Izzy sees him doing this, he's like, you're wearing makeup? What's that all about? And he gets really interested. And so then they do up his makeup and he sings La Vie en Rose at the party. And it's like transcendently beautiful. <laughs> it's like, Izzy, this is gorgeous. I didn't know you had these depths within you. Just great. Great, great stuff. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, so- we don't have any quotes from creators for this one just because we felt like it's straightforwardly a relationship, so it would be them talking about, yeah, how they crafted the relationship, but not really germane, you know, to the goals yeah. of this podcast to determine, and, like, why are the creators not making things canon? It's like, it's yeah. so canon. Or why, like, in the last, in our first episode for this, we had quotes about why they did make it canon, which is, like, yeah. fair enough. How did you conceive of this? Did you always plan for it to be an explicit romance? Like, they talked about queer baiting and not knowing the trauma that fans had surrounding queer baiting and, like, how they would react to the show. These quotes for season two are, like, what were you planning on Ed going through emotionally for season two? And you're, like, they're just pretty traditional <laughs> answers yeah. about storytelling right not really anything to do with the fact that it's a queer romance we've all moved on from that that was a season one concern yeah okay so i read the fic for this one there were a few at the top that were pretty long that i didn't end up reading so i just read the the top like short fic of the most kudos and it's called impulsivity and authenticity by Scree fours. Don't forget to say how many total fix there are. Oh, sorry. Yes. Last episode, there were about 11,000 Ed and Steed fix. And now there are about 16,000 Ed and Steed fix of a total 26,000 are Flag Beans death fix. So a bit of a bump. And this this one just came out 
in October, I think. So this yeah, is only so a couple of months of writing. Season two hasn't been out super long. Yeah. So impulsivity and authenticity. Honestly, there's not a lot to say about this. It's mostly a short little porn. <laughs> it starts yeah. with the moment after the two of them have decided to like take things slowly. So they go back mm-hmm. to Steed's room to have a drink. And then they're sort of thinking about like, what does it mean for us to take this slowly? And they both clearly are still wanting to kiss some more. And Steed is like, well, you know, we also want to be true to ourselves and who we are is impulsive people. (laughs) So wouldn't it make sense for us to lean into who we are? So basically, you know, they're like, yeah, yeah, totally. And they end up having sex and and that's the plot of of the fic. So, you know, not a lot to say, but it is what it is. So the queer baiting. There's not mm-hmm. a ton to say, because in last the last episode, episode, it was clearly queer canon. And now? And still queer canon. Yeah. <laughs> Very I mean, obviously. They're together. A lot of people are together. Lots going on. Thank yep. God they didn't walk it back. That would, how would you even? <laughs> like, you could have them not get together, but I don't know how you could be like, oh, those times when we kissed. Well, uh, when Ed was... wakes up from the coma, you know, it was all a coma. It was all dream. a dream. <laughs> and he's really straight. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, that would be something. But yeah, I mean, it's it's a queer romance on a lot of fronts. And it sort of is what it is. And it's incredibly lovely. It was a lovely Very second good. season. I had a great time. Yeah, good stuff. So fun. Okay. It's time for the big boy. It is. This is what we've all been waiting for. By far the most requested episode, honestly, that we've ever had on this podcast, I think. Okay, so one, at the time of recording, we just got our like Spotify wrapped stats. And Mm -hmm. y'all were listening to the Good Omens OG episode. Yes. An episode we did not even put out this year. And uh, it was our most listened to episode of the year. So a pretty substantial margin. Yes. We've heard your requests. We are just as excited as you to talk about Good Omens. So here we go. Let's get into it. Okay. Who, ship? Crowley? He's a demon? Aziraphale? Yep. He's an angel. Yep. We left them at the end of season one. They'd stop the apocalypse. Great work, guys. They'd save each other from angels and demons, respectively. Mm-hmm. And they went off together holding hands on a bus. Yeah. And they have like a, a you know, boozy lunch at the Ritz and Nightingale yeah. sing in, in <laughs> Sparkly Square or whatever this song yeah. is. And it's lovely. So that was sort of not confirmed, confirmed, but a pretty confirmed romance between the two of them. But we hadn't seen anything explicit. Yeah. So where we pick up with them in the present time is still besties. They're hanging mm-hmm. out together all the time. And things kick off when a naked amnesiac Gabriel shows up on Aziraphale's doorstep with an empty cardboard box. <laughs> and is yes. like, I, I don't know what I'm doing here, but I knew something bad would happen if I didn't come. So here I am. <laughs> yes. And so Aziraphale crawls Crowley and is like, help, come, something's going on. (laughs) Yep. And Crowley shows up and they can't get an answer out of Gabriel. He truly seems to have lost his memory. 
Mm-hmm. And they determine that both heaven and hell are after him. So they both decide to do half a miracle in the hopes that no one notices. Exactly. To... The, the miracle is just that whoever from heaven or hell is looking for him will not be able to find him. So if they see him, they won't notice him. Right. And Gabriel has also said that something terrible is going to happen, but he doesn't know what it is. So Mm -hmm. the sort of thrust of the show is, A, protecting Gabriel from heaven and hell, but also figuring out, like, why he lost his memory, what's the terrible thing he's trying to warn them about. Yeah. What's going on? Yeah. It's a a mystery to be solved. So that's the main overarching plot of the show. But part of that is when the angels find that they have done this miracle, they come to Aziraphale, and Aziraphale is like on the spot, makes up a lie that he did the miracle, but it didn't have anything to do with Gabriel. He was making his two neighbor shopkeepers fall in love with each other. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so then it becomes a quest to make the shopkeepers fall in love with each other so that the angels will believe that the miracle came true. So that's like the subplot of the whole season. Yes. They asked him if it worked, and he said yes. But luckily, the angel they sent to check on it, they were able to trick her into thinking that it, you know, it'll take a little bit of time for the miracle to work, because that's how humans are. Weird. <laughs> yeah. So... These are our main plots of the show. Yes. And the, the, in the course of trying to make the two of them fall in love, which, to be fair, one of them already loves the other one. So they're kind of just yes. making, trying to make the, the record store owner, Maggie, already loves the coffee shop owner, Nina, but they mm-hmm. need to make Nina also fall in love with Maggie. So right. they come up with various like rom-com strategies <laughs> to accomplish this. And Crowley, who has been watching Richard Curtis movies, apparently decides that the thing to do is make there be a rainstorm so that the two of them will have to hide under an awning and then they'll look into each other's eyes and they'll immediately fall in love. So he does do this. Every time. And unfortunately, it does not work because they uh, get drenched with rain. So then the they awning on. collapses with a bunch of rain on. They move on to plan B, which is Aziraphale's plan of taking a page from Jane Austen's book and throwing a ball that they will dance mm-hmm. at together and then fall in love. <laughs> so they do that as well. And neither of them are that also doesn't perfectly work. effective. Yeah. So over the course of the season, we also get a bunch more of their backstory. So sort of in season one, they did a little bit of this, but they mostly did it in that one episode that had like 45 minutes of them throughout history (laughs) and in this case they parse it out through the season so we see them at various stages in their relationship we find out that though we had thought from season one that the two of them met in the garden of eden they did not in fact meet in the garden of eden they met at the creation of the universe when crowley was you know accomplishing god's plan to create all of the stars and the gases and the blah 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 of the universe and and let there be light. He's the one who does that. <laughs> and so the two of them watch this like marvel of creation together. And in a mirror image of the two of them in the Garden of Eden during like a sort of star storm meteor thing, Crowley puts his wing over Aziraphale's head to protect him. <laughs> it's quite lovely. <laughs> it's very sweet. I mean, character wise, too, though, this is also when Crowley is clearly starting to question things because he's like, why would we make all of this for it only to last 6,000 years? Yeah, and that seems crazy. You can see, see in a zero fell's face that he already knows, like, you shouldn't ask questions. Yeah, he's like, I don't think God would appreciate you asking questions. He's like, oh, God can't mind if I just like throw a question in the suggestion box, you know, like, how much trouble can I get in for asking a few questions? And you're like, oof. 
a lot of trouble, good sir. And I think Aziraphale can see that. The next point of history that we see them in is during the book of Job. And like the story of Job is he was a very pious man who God decided to punish in a bet with Satan that, you know, if I punish this guy, if I take everything from him, he's still going to love me. Well, because yes, he's God's favorite and he also loves God the most, right? Yes. So they're testing his faith. And so Aziraphale and Crowley are sent to to make this happen. Crowley is the demon who's supposed to be taking everything away from him. And obviously heaven is supposed to let this happen because that's the bet. Yeah, when God makes a bet with Satan and he says that hell can do whatever they want to Job, you're they supposed have to a just permit. Let, yeah, he has a permit to do these things, to kill all yeah. of Job's goats and then to and kill all children. of Job's children. Yeah. And so in this scene, we learn that Crowley is already sort of defying hell. He was supposed to kill all the goats, but he really turned them into birds. Yeah. And he's supposed to kill the children, but instead he turns them into newts mm-hmm. and hides them. And at first, Aziraphale's like, we can't defy heaven. But he is clearly like, I don't think we should kill the children. Well, because he's he doesn't want the children to die. So for him, what he's trying to do is not... Like thread think the of it, Not think of it as defying heaven, right? But convince Crowley that Crowley's a demon and the point of being a demon is that you're allowed to do whatever you want and Crowley doesn't want to kill these children so he could just not do it. And in his head, he doesn't think of that as being like going against God's wishes. It's just mm-hmm. Crowley going against hell, Hell's right? Hell's wishes. Hell's yeah. wishes. <laughs> and so they have a lot of conversations about Crowley's sort of ideology and how Mm -hmm. he feels about being a demon and he doesn't really believe in the dogma of hell just as much as he didn't believe in the dogma of heaven he's like oh I'm just a I go along with hell as far as I can and then when I don't agree with them I do my own thing right I'm I'm on my own side which is like a news to Aziraphale (laughs) he has never considered anything like this before because he doesn't believe in in defiance right he's an angel yeah and then through the course of the two of them working together to save Job's children and sort of trick heaven, basically, and convince them that they've all done exactly what God wants, but they didn't actually do what God wants. They didn't kill the children. And yes. so they work together. And, and then Aziraphale realizes, I've defied God, right? I, I'm definitely going to get in trouble for this. There's a scene at the end of the episode when he's on a beach having a moment of reflection and Crowley comes up and Aziraphale's like, okay, I'm, I'm ready for you to take me to hell. <laughs> I'm a demon now, right? And Crowley's like, I'm not taking you to hell. I, that That's crazy. Like, you don't have to tell anyone what you did and I won't tell anyone what you did and we'll all just sort of move past it, right? Yeah. And so then he's like, Aziraphale's like, well, then what, what does this mean about me, right? That I have done this. And he's like, well, apparently you're an angel who goes along with heaven as far as you can. Just like, I'm a demon that goes along with hell as far as I can. And they have a moment of being like, well, that sounds kind of lonely. (laughs) And Crowley's like, yeah, you know, it is. Uh, He's been alone himself. And now maybe they can be lonely together, right? Oh. Oh. (laughs) The next thing we see is Scotland. End of the 19th century. Yeah, something about the, the around the turn of the century when surgery is still a new concept. They're in Scotland, and they see a person digging up a grave. And Aziraphale is like, that's wrong. 
you can't do that. Mm-hmm. And Crowley's like, well, let's see why she's doing this. Maybe yeah. there's a reason. And so they walk through this whole process where, you know, they learn that she's destitute and she has this friend that she's trying to take care of. And a doctor is paying them for the bodies. And even though, you know, there's a weird economic thing happening, like the bodies are going towards advancing medical science so they can save people's lives. Like there's a lot of context around all of these actions. Right. Yeah. That Aziraphale has to learn. And so that's sort of the, the point of that piece of the episode. I don't know if there's any specific beats that we want well, to Well, you on. get to see that Crowley is naturally empathetic, right? Like Crowley's mm-hmm. whole take on the situation is these are people who are starving. poor. They're starving through no fault of their own. And they, sh- you know, should be allowed to do whatever they need to do to remedy that situation, right? And, and Aziraphale is left in this position of being like, well, it, I looked at my book and digging up bodies is against the rules, so it's against the rules and it must be bad. And he, like, it's very hard for him to consider the context of what he's talking about. And so Crowley is trying to be like, it's not fair. Like, your your system, Aziraphale's like, the point of being a, a human is that you get to make choices between good and evil, right? You get to do the right thing or the wrong thing. And, and if you're poor, you have even more opportunity if, exactly. to make choices. If you're if the good thing about being poor, because because Crowley says, well, that's only fair if everyone starts from the same place, right? You can't expect poor people to be able to make the same choices that rich people can make. And he's like, no, no, when you're poor, you get even more chances <laughs> to, to make choices. And so Crowley's like, that's crazy, right? Like, you have to consider these people's situations. What you're saying is you would rather they starve to death than do this thing that could save them because you think that it's wrong, even though it's not actually hurting anyone, right? And so it's this interesting point of contention between the two of them that sets up something we'll be talking about at the end of the episode. But just the idea of Aziraphale not being able to let go of the of the, the rules and the context in which he thinks he is supposed to be operating, whereas Crowley has this sort of internal moral compass that he follows that leads him to make the choices that he makes. Yes. And so then the next period of history we see them in is another time period that we saw them in in season one, which is in the 40s. Mm-hmm. It's that scene where Aziraphale maybe first realizes that he has feelings for, for Crowley. He definitely uh, gets at- some butterflies in his tummy when he saves yes. those books. When Crowley saves the books from the burning church. But Hell has realized that they may be working together. And so they resurrect those three <laughs> Nazis they killed in the church as zombies, uh-huh. the living dead, to get evidence that they, they are working together. And so through a series of events, they end up having to do a magic act together. <laughs> and so they end up settling on the bullet catch, which is, you know, a, an act where someone shoots a bullet at you and you catch it in your teeth. And so they are able to get a photograph of them working together on this magic act. Their miracles have been shut off, so they just have to to do it. Like, Crowley yeah. has to shoot at Aziraphale. And they find out on stage that Crowley has never fired a gun before. <laughs> That's true, too. <laughs> also, in that episode, we find out that Aziraphale has a gun, which is Yeah, wild. he has a, a license and a gun yeah. that he keeps in a book. <laughs> He's a Derringer. And he's like, Crowley, you can be the one who fires the gun. You're a demon. You must have fired a gun loads of times. And Crowley's just sort of like, sure. Never fired a gun. (laughs) And so, you know, he does it, though, because even though they both know their miracles are off, Zerophel says to Crowley, I trust you. 
and he doesn't shoot him in the face, which is good. And, you know, Hell they yeah. do the trick. And then the, the demons and the zombies confront them and say, we have the evidence. And they have taken a photo of, of Aziraphale handing Crowley the gun. But Aziraphale does a little sleight of hand and takes the photo and puts, you know, a flyer in the, the folder with the demons. And so they get to go another day without having been caught. Yeah. They're working together. It's a fun little historical interlude for the two of mm-hmm. them. So... Back in the present, they've been doing their various rom-com schemes. They've been investigating Gabriel. Things finally come to a head when the demons come to Earth to attack them in their in the bookshop. And there's going to be a, a war. And so Crowley goes to heaven to try to figure out what the heck's been going on all this time. And he gets access to, you know, some footage of Gabriel being exiled from heaven, basically. So the, yeah, the being the not main... interested in doing apocalypse too. Yep. And so, so all like, the rest of go. the council of angels votes him out, and he's like, okay, well, and they're gonna just demote him, and he's like, okay, great, let me let me go clear out my desk, and I'll be right back. And so he leaves to clear out his desk and and does something on the footage. He takes off his clothes to leave them because they didn't want him to wear the clothes he was wearing, and he takes this cardboard box. And so Crowley is like trying to put together what's been going on with this. He goes back down to the bookshop, and now not only are the demons here but the angels have all shown up in this bookshop to have like the big showdown of what's mm-hmm. been going on throughout the season and we find out that what happened was in the aftermath of the first apocalypse gabriel who's the lead angel in heaven and beelzebub who's the lead demon in hell had been meeting each other to have like a drink every now and then and talk about trying not to do another apocalypse because neither of them I think were initially they're in. meeting to like set up apocalypse too and then they both realize like well, i don't really want to do i'm not that interested now. in an apocalypse are you interested and they're like no i'm not that interested all right well what if we sell it to our people that we just don't do another apocalypse and over the course of these various meetings with each other they bond they both realize that they like the Buddy Holly song every day, which becomes a running thing through through the season. And, you know, they they bond over the various things they've done. At one point, Beelzebub gives Gabriel a gift, which is a fly, because Beelzebub's always covered in flies, but it's a fly that is also a container. And Gabriel's really touched because he's never been given a gift before. And and you know, they fall in love is the story of the two of them. You see it and, as like a, a flashback because basically the fly has gone back into Gabriel. That's where he stored his memory. So yes. we, the viewer, get to see all the things that he had put away into the fly. Yep. And so that's what he had been doing in heaven was taking out his memories, putting them in this fly. They end up finding the the evidence, putting it all together. The two of them remember, well, Gabriel remembers who he is. And so... They're going to punish both of them, right? Because they've been defying heaven and hell, respectively. And Aziraphale and Crowley are basically like, well, what if we just ask them what they want to (laughs) do? And so Crowley gives a speech. They're like, I just want to be wherever, you know, Beelzebub wants to be wherever Gabriel is and vice versa. Gabriel says, wherever Beelzebub is, is my heaven. And Beelzebub says, wherever Gabriel is, is my hell. Is my hell. (laughs) You're like, oh. (laughs) And so Crowley says, you know. I've heard Alpha Tori's really nice. I've always wanted to go there, as we all remember from season one. It's where he tried to run away to with Aziraphale. 
And so they decide that's what they're going to do. The two of them just peace out, go to Alpha Tori. And Alpha Centauri, not Alpha Tori. Alpha Tori. Alpha Centauri. And, and so it's lovely. It's, it's lovely. So nice. It's really lovely. <laughs> and the rest of the angels and demons are sort of like, well, damn, what are we going to do about this? We'll have to chase after them. And the Shax, who is the demon that has taken Crowley's place, where it comes to the realization that, well, now that Beelzebub's gone, I could just take their spot and be mm-hmm. the leader of hell. And promotion, baby. Promotion, exactly. And the angels are like, yeah, this is kind of more trouble than it's worth to go after Gabriel. Everybody decides, fuck it, like, let's just forget about them and, and move on. And then Metatron shows up. Oh. Yeah. Metatron. He always it's never blows. a good time. It's never a good time when Metatron shows up. So... He ends up, you know, similar to Shaxx, maybe taking over for Beelzebub. He offers Aziraphale Gabriel's job. And as an incentive, says, we'll make Crowley an angel again, and then you guys can still be together. But I, I really think that you're you're the right person for this job. We have a lot of work to do, and we really need yep. someone to fill this role. Yep. Meanwhile, Crowley has had a conversation with the two shopkeepers. They've been trying to get to fall in love, Maggie and Nina, who explained to him, like, you can't just make people fall in love. Like, like we've got things going on. You know, just broke up with her partner. Like, it's not, it's not happening. But yeah. that being said, the thing to do is to not do all this like rom com, manipulate them bullshit. into falling in love. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You just need to be honest with people about how you feel and be straightforward. Mm-hmm. And so. Crowley decides that, like, you know what? Yeah, you're right. So he's going to go and he's going to tell Aziraphale how he feels. And so they do the classic thing where Crowley's like, I have to talk to you. And Aziraphale goes, me first. I've got great news. And you're like, don't let him (laughs) talk first, Crowley. (laughs) And Aziraphale reveals that Metatron offered him this job and, you know, that Crowley could be an angel again and they could be in heaven. And Crowley says, well, you said no, right? Yeah, like, I would never be an angel again. I thought you knew that about me. He said no, right? I wish I could tell you he said no. (laughs) He enthusiastically said yes. He was sure that Crowley would be on board with this because all he's ever wanted is to become an angel again, right? (laughs) And they're the good guys. Yeah, I mean, Crowley says to him, I would never agree to become a demon, like go back to hell. I thought you would feel the same way about heaven. And he's like, well, of course you wouldn't go back to hell. You're the bad guys. And you're like... Oh, man, Aziraphale. <laughs> I haven't learned anything. You haven't learned anything at all. So he didn't say no. He wants them to go run off together. And Crowley is like, well, damn, I guess I should still say what I was going to say. Because maybe I will be able to change your mind. <laughs> and then what follows is just the most heartbreaking <laughs> scene that's never happened. <laughs> so I think we're going to have to do just a dramatic rating of the entire thing because yeah, okay, we can't guess, miss oh, any. I bits. guess I'll be Aziraphale if you want to be Crowley. Okay. <laughs> all right. So Crowley is like, all right, I'm going to do this. Let me say what I'm going to say. He says, "We've known each other a long time. We've been on this planet for a long time. I mean, you and me." I could always rely on you. You could always rely on me. We're a team, a group, a group of the two of us. And we've spent our existence pretending that we aren't. 
I mean, the last few years, not really. And I would like to spend, I mean, if Gabriel and Beelzebub can do it, go off together, then we can. Just the two of us. We don't need heaven. We don't need hell. They're toxic. We need to get away from them. Just be an us. You and me. What do you say? Come with me to heaven. I'll run it. You can be my second in command. We can make a difference. You can't leave this bookshop. Oh, Crowley, nothing lasts forever. No, no, I don't suppose it does. And Crowley puts his sunglasses back on and walk, starts walking out and he says, good luck. Good luck. Crowley, come back to heaven. Work with me. We can be together. Angels doing good. I need you. I don't think you understand what I'm offering you. I understand. I think I understand a whole lot better than you do. Well, then there's nothing more to say. Listen, do you hear that? I don't hear anything. That's the point. No nightingales. You idiot. We could have been us. And he runs across the room and grabs Aziraphale and kisses him. And then Aziraphale says, I forgive you. And Crowley says, don't bother. And walks oh, off. Oh, no. It's so awful. <laughs> Nappy. I told yep. you. I was watching it. And you get to the I forgive you, which is like, and I, my reaction was like, I want to vomit and die. <laughs> you and Crowley both. Oh, my God. It's the, the, I mean, it's all painful. It's all so painful. But the I forgive you, like, the Christianness yes. of the I forgive you in light of this queer relationship uh-huh. is like, damn it, Neil. Yeah. Neil is an evil genius. I think this is a perfectly written scene. <laughs> it's oh like, oh my God. Exactly the perfect, every perfect wrong thing a zero fail could say is exactly what he says in this situation, right? I, I told you my notes for this whole conversation were like, I'm giving you my heart and you're offering me a job, <laughs> right? Like that is this conversation oh. of Crowley being like, really laying it all out there and Aziraphale saying, but we could work together. And you're like, no, <laughs> buddy, no. <laughs> right, also the layer of we think we've been watching Aziraphale grow really over two seasons yeah. to understand the idea of Shades of Grey, right? Mm-hmm. And, then and then to get here and be like, He doesn't understand it at all. He has not been learning and growing. The lessons that we thought he was learning in that episode about Scotland, he was not learning at all. (laughs) Like, that he is still in a place where... Well, he thinks he's superior. He does. There's all these layers of it, right? He has never moved on past the, like, initial programming that he got as an angel, right? Like that heaven is good and hell is bad and everything that hell or that heaven does is what God wants. And if God wants it, it must be good. And even though he's had m- many times in his life now where he's seen things that God supposedly wanted that were very much not good, he has not been able to break free from this idea that heaven is good and hell is bad. And, and because of this, that is such a formational part of his identity you realize he has always been looking down on Crowley. He has always been waiting for Crowley to d- 
tell him, like, you've always been right and I actually want to be an angel and be good again. And it's like, you're not seeing his goodness. That he is good. Yeah. Everyone else is seeing Crowley's goodness. You get lots of moments in this season of people being like, you know, you're really nice. (laughs) And Crowley being like, no, I'm not. Shut up. Don't tell (laughs) anyone. Don't say that. But he's an inherently good being, which is why he won't succumb to either of the dogmas of these things, right? Like he sees the people and wants to help them specifically. Good is often contextual. (laughs) Yes. Uh, And and Aziraphale has never understood that about him. And so it's heartbreaking. (laughs) Like Crowley has always thought we've been on the same page. We just haven't been saying it aloud. Right. And you find out that is not the case. Right. The the condescension in, in the line, I don't think you understand what I'm offering you. And the way that Michael Sheen Blossom delivers that line yeah. is like, it's so cold. Because angels are cold. Yeah, they're cold and stupid. <laughs> they're, they're stupid. <laughs> they're definitely stupid. But they are cold. There's no room for angels to understand humanity really and i think that's the heart of it right it's like they've both been living on earth among humans this whole time but crowley has embraced humanity he really loves humans and he wants to save them and he is the driving force behind them averting the apocalypse and (laughs) averting the things that are to come right because part of the conversation in this end scene is when Aziraphale says he's going to go back and work for heaven. He's like, oh, you know, I could really do some, some good there. Heaven are the good guys. And Crowley's like, when heaven ends life on earth, everyone will be just as dead as if hell had done it. Like you, yeah. you, it's not more just because it was heaven that did it. Right. It's not just to kill all of the humans. And you have to understand that. And part of it is like tied up with the humanity is the, the love for Aziraphale, right? Like the idea of them having a romantic relationship is is inherently not an angelic thing. It is a human mm-hmm. thing. And so Aziraphale has never understood that as being Crowley's intention because Aziraphale sees himself as an angel and that's not something an angel does, right? And so just to have all of these things that you thought were unspoken and agreed upon turn out to be not agreed upon at all. <laughs> like... Yeah. Aziraphale was living in a life where he just happened to have this less good than him friend that he hoped he might someday become a good person. <laughs> and it's like, fuck. <laughs> like, I think the thing is too, right? It's it's that, but you do feel like, oh, Azir, you just have not examined your inner emotions. Like you're so Absolutely disconnected. Not from it's it's just so easy to live in the dogma and not have to think about how you feel and mm-hmm. and what's going on and so you know we'll get that there's there's going to be a season 3 yep um so it's not to say that he can't like take a step back and be like wait how am i feeling and access that i think that's going to have to be all of season 3 what happens <laughs> yeah but it's it's obvious i mean it's easy it's easy to just have a set of rules that are binary mhm Yes, no. And if I say yes, I'm a good person and superior and an angel. Yeah. I mean, it's just such a perfect exploration of, like, dogmatic Christianity in general, right? Like, the whole thing is so, like, if I just follow these specific set of rules, I'm a good person. And you're like, but you are hateful. (laughs) You are a hateful person. And they're like, well, but I'm just following what the book tells me. The book says, don't dig up the dead. The book says. 
kill Job's children. Oh, we'll right. place them with different children. Who cares? Yeah, exactly. And I mean, oh, zero fail. Like, what a fucking disappointment. <laughs> like, it, it hurts so much. But I admire the I forgive you from a writing perspective. Yeah. He picked the perfect three words to just cut. Yeah. It's so short. And it and cuts. It, I mean, yeah. It's fucking great writing. For I forgive you. Ugh. Yeah. I mean. Ugh. <laughs> it's the most Christian thing he could have said. Yeah. Absolutely. And you're like, I don't need to be forgiven. What the fuck is wrong with you? <laughs> well, that's, I mean, it's a superiority too, thing, too. Like, who are you to forgive me? Like, right. A zero fail. He's going to have to do the biggest, you were right, I was wrong. Yeah, it's going to be an extended musical <laughs> number of the you were right and I was wrong dance because no one has ever been more wrong than <laughs> a zero fail. No. And then, of so, course, yeah. Crowley storms out. Metatron comes in and is like, all right, you ready to get to work? And he takes Aziraphale up to heaven and not before telling him, glad you've come on board. We have a lot of work for you to do. We've got big projects in the works. Uh, the next one is something we call the second coming. <laughs> and Aziraphale immediately does get a look on his face of like, oh. Oh, oh no. <laughs> oh, this wasn't the good work I was hoping to do. I mean, just the fact that he thought they were planning good work is like, how naive can a person be? I mean, angels are dumb. Angels are very dumb. We know this from all media about angels ever. Yeah. <laughs> but that, like, that's part of the problem. They're pretty stupid. <laughs> they're incurious, right? Like the, the thing that mm -hmm. casts you out of being an angel is curiosity. Asking questions is the thing that makes God be like, no, 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 I can't have this <laughs> going around. And so an inherent quality of an angel is like naivete. Not, though, naivete. Right? Like exactly. You just someone presents you with something and you go, yes. Mm -hmm. Which is Muriel's <laughs> whole thing. I love Muriel. <laughs> I love Muriel too. She's very sweet. But yeah, just to be like, well, I mean, God is God. God is inherently good. And so anything that God wills is definitely good. And so, sure, if you want me to come run heaven, I'm sure that it will be to help people good. and do great things. Yep. <laughs> like, and so, yeah, the, you know, there's like one last look between Aziraphale and Crowley as he gets in the elevator to go up to heaven. And then the end credits roll over like both of their faces. Crowley's driving home in his yeah. car and you see Aziraphale in the elevator as the floors are ticking by and you can see in his eyes, obviously, some calculus going on where he's like, I might have made a mistake. He's really going to have to go through a journey in season three yeah. because he's got so much to learn. Mm -hmm. And obviously he would not have been ready <laughs> to be with Crowley, but like, you got work to do, bud. The fact that you were like, work. have always just been waiting for them to ask you to be an angel again. I mean, <laughs> come on. <laughs> I mean, it's so oh. hard. It's so hard to be in love with someone and then also to realize like, you don't know me. Yeah. Like we've been together forever. Literally forever. We've been growing together as a partnership. And that's the incuriosity too, I suppose, right? Yes. Like, 
he's just assumed these things about Crowley because that's the way anyone would be in his mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, it all, it's also hurtful. <laughs> it's really bad. It's really bad. Like, to have just never really wondered who Crowley is. He always just thought of Crowley as this not very good demon. <laughs> <laughs> like occasionally did good things and he would say to him like oh I think you're actually not so bad but like he's never really thought about why and what drives Crowley and why he is the person that he is and for him to just be like well I I guess always just assumed that you were Maybe in he was doing good things he assumed that of course you'd want to be you know back in the good graces because you are being good right but I just, it's like, it's not like Crowley hasn't expressed his contempt for well, it's heaven It's very before. clear that he wouldn't <laughs> want to go to heaven. I think any anyone else would be like, that's not an offer he's going to take. It's just absolutely wild that Aziraphale is still this. You're like, you, you are the same person you were when we did the Job stuff. Yeah. I wonder if some of it, too, is Aziraphale is usually able to get Crowley to come along with him. Like, he kind of pouts, and then Crowley's yeah, like, yeah, all yeah. right, I'll help you. Right. So I do also wonder if there's an element of him being like, he always comes with you me. You always come. Yeah. Well, and they, I mean, they've had multiple conversations of, like, I've always been able to trust you, and you asked me to trust you, and so I did. And so he thinks this situation will be the same as all other situations. Mm. And it's really not. <laughs> it's really not the same situation. Um, he just, I mean, it is wild. What a blind spot. <laughs> really? It's interesting. So you had watched this a little while ago, and yeah. I didn't get around to actually watching it until right before we recorded, like, this past week. And so, you know, we've been getting all of these requests to do it. So I have yeah. been wondering, like, what could possibly have happened? <laughs> like, what could have happened? <laughs> And I'm going along, and it's lovely and fun, and I'm enjoying it. Yep. And then, yeah, you get to this end, and you're like, oh, I see why you guys oh, that's, were like... that's what happened. As that's soon as people happened. watched it, they were like, oh, my God. <laughs> guys, that's what happened. <laughs> yeah. It was pretty uh, heartbreaking there at the end. Man, and I, like man. everyone else, I'm sure Amelia's like, when is season three coming? I was Googling. I was like, what is Neil? Well, yeah, but I mean, when the show came out, we were in a writer's strike. And so everyone was like, Neil, what the fuck? Where's season three? And he's like, hey, I'd be writing it right now if we weren't <laughs> in a writer's, writer's strike. strike is so I'm sure now that the strikes are over, he's working on it. And hopefully they will yes. film it next year, maybe. And we will get it at some point. I think season three will be the end, which makes sense to me. The culmination yeah. of this arc. But before we get into, like, quotes and stuff, can we go through, I know we both, we ran through the overarching stuff, but I know we both have a million little notes of things that <laughs> happen in the season that I'm sure we want to mention. Just little delightful moments with the two of them. Like, very early on, when Gabriel shows up at Aziraphale's place, and Aziraphale's like, why have you come to me? And Gabriel says, you know what it's like when you don't know anything at all, yet you're totally certain that everything would be better if you were just near one particular person? <laughs> and Aziraphale's like, no, certainly not. I have no idea what that feels like. I don't it know why you, you would ask that. me. Yeah. <laughs> 
You do. Do you, you have the full do. text of the scene where Nina is talking to Crowley about, you know, oh, you know what it's like with your boyfriend? And I don't like, think I do. That's a that scene is so so great though. There's a scene where the two of them are bickering in the street as they always are, and <laughs> Mina comes out and she's seen them arguing with each other and and she's like, "How long have you two been together?" And Curly's like, "What? <laughs> like we're it's not we're not like that. I don't know what you're talking about." Yeah. She's like, "Oh, uh, so what?" He's like, "Your boy on the side? Are you married? You have a husband? <laughs> like what's the deal?" Yeah. And he's like. Aziraphale could not be anyone's, like, mistress. <laughs> I don't know yeah. what the hell you're talking about. He's an angel. Right. He's an a- He's just an angel that I, you know, he tries to, like, explain away their relationship. She's like, oh, it doesn't seem like it to me. But I guess other people's romantic lives are always so much easier than our own. <laughs> and Crowley <laughs> leaves that scene with a face like, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> nah. Like he went home and uh, could not sleep that night. <laughs> he was mm-hmm. replaying that conversation. I mean, just the two of them establishing like their dynamic and how well they know each other. When Aziraphale first calls Crowley to be like, you have to come over. <laughs> you need your help with something. Uh, he's like, okay, so what's the problem? And he's like, how do you know there's a problem? He's like, well, you only ever call me for three reasons. And he says, you know, you want to brag about this or you want to blah, 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 or something's wrong. And this was your something's wrong voice. <laughs> There's also early on, too, where he's, like, talking about the uh, Zerafel's renamed Gabriel Jim, short yes. for James, sometimes yep. short for Gabriel. And there's that great moment where Carly says, do we know a Jim? Which is such a, like, a couple yes. way of phrasing. Do we that. know a Jim is perfect. Do we know a If I know a Jim, you definitely know the same Jim. We know all the same yeah. people. I like... When at first Crowley's trying to not help Gabriel, when Gabriel arrives, he's like, "What if we just like drive him somewhere far away and leave him there, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. then he will be out of our lives." I need him to be far away from the precious, peaceful, fragile existence I've carved out for myself. And Aziraphale says, "I thought we carved it out for ourselves." And Crowley's like, "So did I." <laughs> They've been building a life together. Why are you letting? Gabriel threatened the whole thing. Yeah, but Gabriel's not really the problem. Well, but the Gabriel of old is not someone he that would have been the problem to have with you. So at he first, Crowley's like, "How do we problem. know that he doesn't have memories?" Just because he says he doesn't have memories, he could be here doing something bad. We've referenced it before, but the apology dance—that is married behavior <laughs> they i have, love the apology dance they have a specified apology dance that they have to do when one of them is wrong and azir feels like i did the dance for you and he like lists all these times that he had done the dance and why crowley has to do the dance this is not really about them but we have to talk about jane austen i love oh my god <laughs> i mean the show is so funny uh- so like, when they're want- talking about how they're going to variously rom-com Nina and Maggie, you know, Aziraphale mentions that he's going to take, a, as you mentioned, like a page out of Jane Austen's book. And Crowley goes, Jane Austen was a writer? Yeah, no. So he's like, you know Jane Austen? He's like, yeah, of course I know Jane Austen. The brains behind the 1812 Clark and Diamond robbery? Brandy smuggler? Master spy? What a piece of work. <laughs> and he's like, no, she wrote novels. And he's like, Jane? Austen? She wrote? <laughs> like, it's, very it's a running gag. It's great. A good running gag. I like when Aziraphale needs to take the car to Scotland and he calls it our car. He just mm-hmm. assumes he will be able to take Crowley's car. 
And I oh, like man. when he's driving it to Scotland and he makes it play nice music and he turns it yellow. Yes. <laughs> the car sort of adapts to whichever of them is driving it at the time. Yeah. And Crowley can tell. He's <laughs> like, you've done something to the car. It's not supposed to drive below this, like speed limit and my car has never been yellow oh the whole scotland episode is so wild every day it's getting closer i really like all of it every day that's so charming yeah i just want to say i love crowley's 1940s outfit (laughs) he's so adorable Yeah, and they do the bullet catch. They have a conversation where Aziraphale says, I knew you would come through for me. You always do. And Crowley said, well, you said trust me. And Aziraphale says, and you did. Mm. It's like, yeah. They really do trust each other. I really love the moment when Crowley starts to get worried about Gabriel smiting him. (laughs) He's like, when Gabriel smites you, you've been (laughs) singed, smote? smitten <laughs> and and yeah Zerville's like smitten I believe and he just thinks that Crowley's so charming and cute yeah and then Crowley goes and threatens Gabriel because he's very traumatized by the time when Gabriel tried to destroy Zerville in the last yeah. season you told my only friend to shut his stupid mouth and die and I did not care for it <laughs> It's like the scene where he's confronted him and then he eventually brings him hot chocolate again. And then when he's leaving and Gabriel's like, you're actually very nice. And he's like, don't say that. And he's like, ah, no one's going to believe you anyway. (laughs) Oh, at the Jane Austen ball, Aziraphale and Crowley dance. They do. That's very It's adorable. Yeah, Aziraphale gets into the spirit of things and asks Crowley to dance. And Crowley's like, you don't dance. (laughs) Like implying that Crowley does dance, I guess. Oh, I like when things are going to hell in the bookshop and Crowley's gone off and Aziraphale's left with Nina and Maggie. And he's like, don't worry, Crowley will be back in a moment and he'll have a plan. And they're like, why don't you stand up for yourself? Make your own plan. And he says, oh, I am. But rescuing me makes him so happy. I like that too. (laughs) That's a fun bit about demons being stupid too, because they keep walking single file into that thing that like evaporates. Yes. All angels and demons are so dumb. (laughs) Oh, when Gabriel and Beelzebub have their little romance and they show the whole thing, and one of them says, I just found something that mattered more to me than choosing sides. And Aziraphale, like, clutches Crowley's arm. Another moment, that whole scene, you feel like Aziraphale is understanding what's going on, but he's not understanding it at all. Again, I feel like... That makes the eye, it it, it all just makes the eye forgive you so much more pointed and worse. Because he can see this other angel and demon who are presenting as male and female, right? Mm -hmm. Fall in love and like go off together. And he's like, chill. That's lovely. How beautiful. And then, you know, I'm not saying that they're perceiving in that way, but obviously it reads that way to us as a viewer. And so it just. Yeah. Oh, (laughs) God I apologize damn, to everyone Neil. whose religious trauma was reactivated <laughs> by that final scene of the show. Because, yeah, you're like, it's, it's, you've been watching him theoretically grow over millennia. Yeah. You see him understand Beelzebub and Gabriel's relationship and be so happy for them that they get to go off together to Alpha Centauri. And when you know, Crowley says Alpha Centauri and how he's always wanted to go there, the look Aziraphale ga- gives him is this, like, remembrance of him mentioning it the last season. And you're like, 
I thought we were on the same page. You really do until then at the end. <laughs> I I described this to you yesterday as like, you know, we're in the season we're in season two, part two of a three season thing. It like it so feels like the end of Empire Strikes Back where, you know, Vader reveals that he's Luke's father and you're just like Well, that just what? blew everything up. <laughs> How could this be? How, How could this be? be? <laughs> like such a low point at the end of your second part. Such a low point, but the perfect setup for season three, right? I mean, like I, I'm excited you, for season three. You can, you know exactly how this arc is going to go. It's going to be such a satisfying payoff. I'm very, very, very excited <laughs> for season three. I mean, I said I wanted to vomit and die, but it, it truly is like a hurt so good place where I'm like, if, I'm assuming it's going to wrap up in a way that I find satisfying. And when it does, like you want you want the low so you can get the high. And then yeah. I'm like, Ugh. I, I feel like there there were everyone obviously was freaking out about the end because no one expected this to be how it ended. And everyone's like yelling at Neil Gaiman about it. And I get it to a certain extent. But then there are people who are like. I can't believe you did that, worried that they're not going to get together. And I'm like, they, he only did this so that they would get together. <laughs> like, narratively, I mean, the only fair, thing though, that makes sense. People have been burned before. We said the same thing about Castia and well, Dean. God, that was a wild situation. <laughs> people have been burned before, so it's not as in that it's happening in a vacuum. But I, I, yes, I don't but think Neil is the makers of no. Supernatural. And I mean, I just think... This to me is the queer canon people should have been waiting for. This is this is a love story told with care. The mm -hmm. characters are going to have to grow and change. And it's not just a thing where it's like, oh, we realized we're in love and now we're together. Like, they're going to have to work for this shit <laughs> and become people who can be together. And that's the whole arc of the show. The whole arc of the show is going to be that. How can... Mm -hmm. Aziraphale confront these things about himself to get to the place where he ultimately should be, which is with Crowley. Uh, but he's yep. got a lot to work through before that happens, <laughs> clearly. And understanding that good is contextual and that there are shades of gray and all of the things. Yeah. And then the show works on that other level of deconstructing sort of organized religion and Christianity and dogma and all of that sort of stuff and like having to unlearn these things that he learned as a not a kid but you know a young angel <laughs> as, a, as a newer being right but um it's really really good writing it's really painful in exactly the right way and I'm very excited for him I to get it I get why everyone was freaking out. Fix I it. I, I knew <laughs> people were. Three. You knew they and were. I went into it and I said, what's going to be the thing? And you're like, well, this just feels like a very charming season about them rom-comming these yeah, two what ladies. What happening <laughs> with Gabriel? Is it something with Gabriel that's mm -hmm. going to really bring a hammer down? No. No. Everyone else's Paul's story. coming from inside the building. <laughs> it's coming from inside the house. Everything with Gabriel is great. Everything with Nina and Maggie is great. Everything with Aziraphale and Crowley is devastating. Good job, Neil. Devastating. But yeah, I thought I it was that. just so, so smart to have that Scotland episode be like exactly the arc of next season. 
mm-hmm. <laughs> like this is this is the issue. He's told you that the issue is still there, and you forget all about it. And then at the end of the season, you're like, oh fuck! Remember all that stuff he said? He still thinks that. Yeah. All right. Do we have any quotes? Uh, we do. Neil Gaiman says a lot on the internet all the time. He is an accessible figure. We want people to know he has a Tumblr, if you Mm -hmm. don't know that. And on said Tumblr, at the very top of it, he has compiled in a helpful FAQ document all of the questions that he's ever answered about Good Omens. (laughs) So it's a delight to read. You could go through it for hours, I'm sure. But I did want to highlight one hilarious Tumblr question and response from Neil. to honestly kind of lighten the mood. (laughs) But someone came on and said, Hi, Mr. Neil Gaiman. I just binge-watched almost all of Good Omens, keep in mind almost all, last night for the first time, 10 out of 10, and got a bit consumed, but I wanted to ask, will there be another season? And are they actually gay, or am I being queer-baited the fuck out of? Because they haven't, like, directly said anything, but... And this is Neil's response. We're just queer-baiting you. Nina and Maggie, for example, are both happily married to nice men, and none of the things you think you saw at the end of season two, episode six, actually happened, as Crowley will explain to his wife or wives at the beginning of the next season. (laughs) Neil's fun. fun I like Neil. Neil's great. So, the fic check. Mm -hmm. Uh, In the last episode, there were about 28,000 Aziraphale and Crowley fic, and now there are about... 49,000 Aziraphale and Crowley Hell fic yeah. of a total 58,000 Good Omens fic. What's so fun about this ship is you could situate them in any place in history and it wouldn't even really be an AU. No. <laughs> None of it is an AU. They just, like, them throughout time is them. Yeah. Anything yeah. could have happened to them anywhere. What you could do, a, you know, a coffee shop AU and it wouldn't be an AU. That could have just been like some thing they got up to at one point. <laughs> yeah. So on this one, the top fic is a bit longer, but I did manage to read it. It is called Drinking Buddies and Diaries by Dove underscore Dove. And this is an interesting one. This is some wish fulfillment. It is a fix it basically of someone who I assume wanted to be like that stuff didn't just happen (laughs) like we didn't just live through that there has to be some explanation for why Aziraphale would do such a thing and so it's um the premise is Muriel is now running the bookshop Aziraphale's in heaven Crowley's been left behind and Crowley sees Muriel and Muriel is like, oh, I've been reading everything in the bookshop and I came across this book that Aziraphale wrote to his friend Diary. (laughs) And there's a lot of stuff about you in it. Do you want to read? And so Muriel gives Crowley Aziraphale's most recent diary. And indeed, it is almost exclusively about Crowley. It is all about how much he loves Crowley and how great he is and how they're perfect for each other and how much he loves him and wants him and everything you would hope that Aziraphale would be saying in his diary about Crowley. And then we find out that Aziraphale has manufactured this whole thing. He's working with Muriel. He got Muriel to give the diary to Crowley so that Crowley would know that he still cared about him. And he's trying to like figure out a way to make all of this 
work and get mm-hmm. Crowley to forgive him. And so through the course of the fic, Crowley and Muriel develop a friendship, which is quite lovely. The two of them go feed frozen peas to ducks. And he's teaching Muriel how to use powers and and live amongst humans and takes Muriel to go get drinks and uh, like shows her what a Shirley Temple is. <laughs> and Aww. she's like... You know, experiencing humanity with Crowley as guide, and the two of them are becoming friends. And then Muriel starts to decide, like, things aren't happening quickly enough between Aziraphale and Crowley. So, like, what if I could make Aziraphale jealous (laughs) that Crowley and I are maybe interested in each other now? And so they sort of manufacture Aziraphale finding out about the two of them hanging out together. Then... It sort of goes too far because Muriel has been performing miracles that should not be performed. And so Aziraphale comes back. Muriel has been called up to heaven and is confronted by Metatron, who tries to make her fall, basically. But because Crowley has given a lesson that any miracle can be done as long as you believe that you could do it. She now is, like, able to make lots of miracles happen. She makes a miracle that Metatron falls asleep. And then she takes the Book of Life and she (laughs) escapes from heaven. And now she's back and they're all on the run because heaven and hell are both coming for Muriel. And so the three of them sort of flee to, like, a seaside town for a bit and hope to hide out there. And they do kind of work out the... I mean, Muriel keeps trying to make Aziraphale jealous, and then Aziraphale and Crowley work out what's been going on. The The explanation for why Aziraphale went to heaven, I think, is a little thin, because there's not a good explanation in reality, but it sort of is like, I never wanted to leave you, I just had to do this for yada yada reason, mm-hmm. and Crowley is able to forgive Aziraphale, and then it all culminates in this big scene at the end where all the angels and the demons have like stopped them in a field and they're going to attack them. But then God shows up and has a private conversation with Muriel about how all of the miracles Muriel was able to perform are because God wanted her to. And actually, I haven't like everything that Metatron has been saying they've been doing because of my will was not actually my will. That was just Metatron doing Metatron things. And so I am kind of over Metatron. And now I want you, Muriel, to be the, the word of God now. So she mm-hmm. gets promoted. And then they, Crowley and Aziraphale are in love again, and Muriel is going to get to still see them. And now they sort of have like the protection of God from the angels and demons. And so then they just are like, they move in together and they're happy in the end and Muriel comes and sees them. So it's like the the bomb for the wounded souls, <laughs> the people who just watched the show, right? The like, actually, Aziraphale loved him the whole time and everything was fine. And <laughs> Metatron is just like one bad apple who we got rid of and now it's all going to be good. <laughs> if only. <laughs> if only. So mm-hmm. I, I get it as a thing people would want to read. I don't think it's as satisfying as what I assume will happen in season three, but as like, a, maybe it's not all that bad. <laughs> sort of thing i understand the instinct and you get a lot of muriel which is always fun i love i muriel. like muriel She's and the adorable. idea of muriel and crowley being friends i think is is quite nice i like that too yeah <laughs> i like the idea of them being friends i'm a human police officer I'm a, and they're like you sure are <laughs> 
didn't talk about that. I love when Muriel's shows yeah. up. And like I'm an, an inspector, and they're like, you're, you're dressed as a constable. And she's like, well, I meant my name is Inspector Constable. Okay. <laughs> you're like, what? They're very, very charming. I like her. So, queer baiting scale? Last time we said it was queer canon. I would say it remains queer canon. Just painful, painful queer canon. <laughs> Be careful what you wish for. Queer canon. Queer canon. Yep, yep, yep. Painful in the way you want a story to be painful. Not painful because, like, they're denying it. And you're like, come on, guys. Painful in the best way. I Obviously, I cried watching it. But I also was like, this is perfect. I'm going to be so satisfied in season three. (laughs) Because what I don't want. This is going to be so good when we get to it. Because, like, what I don't want is for them to just paper over all of this and be like, well, I guess we'll agree to disagree. Like, I want Aziraphale to learn and grow and know that heaven is not right. (laughs) Like, just yeah. because they say they are. Like, I want him to understand what Crowley means when he says we're on our own side. I, It's like, I really want to get to that there. place. And I, I think need he's him going to. get to. there. And then I need him to do a full musical number. Yes. There needs to be singing dance. and dancing <laughs> about yeah. the Production. Yes. I think, so, definitely queer canon. I was telling you, I listened back to our first Good Omens, and I'd forgotten that I didn't love season one. But I gotta say, love season two. I'm all well, about and, season two. And can we take a moment to talk about an appreciation for David Tennant? You, I believe, before season one, had not seen David Tennant in anything? I think the only thing I'd probably seen him in was that Harry Potter he's in. For oh, like sure, sure, a sure. Half yeah. a minute. For, like, half a second. But you, she, like, you've never seen Doctor, Doctor Who, Who. You've never seen Broadchurch. You've never seen, like, any of the things that he's known for. I hadn't watched for. DuckTales yet. Hadn't watched DuckTales. <laughs> I love in the Scotland episode of this how he gets to, like, really play up the Scottish he, accent. I, but he sounds so much like his Scrooge, which obviously, yeah. yes. But I was like, ah! Yeah, Scrooge. it's fun. We have never talked about it on this podcast, because obviously, why would we? But the DuckTales reboot is so good. You yeah, guys. if people have not seen the DuckTales reboot, go watch it. It's killer (laughs) and the entire voice cast is fantastic and the episodes are great and there's like pathos to it the emotional arcs are great it's a wonderful show Mm. but yeah we were talking yesterday and i i do think it deserves to be mentioned david tennant what a goddamn delight (laughs) no no he's incredible yeah i said to you like i i've never i haven't figured out how to phrase this in a way that doesn't sound critical but like i I mean it in the most positive way his body is unbelievable (laughs) Yeah, he is a very physicality. physical actor. He inhabits the body of whoever he's playing in a way where you're like, I've never seen anyone do that before. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's mm-hmm. when they go when Muriel takes him to heaven. There's the scene where he's like prancing after her and he looks like a cartoon character. Yes. <laughs> and you're like, this is flipping delightful, Tenet. I love it. And Michael yeah. Sheen is great, too. Obviously, Michael Sheen is great. But I do... I, I'm glad that this has like brought you into the David Tennant I experience be because I think Tennant is one of those beloved internet figures that you're mm-hmm. missing out on if you haven't haven't seen him before. And I should also say now, if I don't think I've watched full episodes, but I've seen clips from the show he did with Michael Sheen over the yes, pandemic, staged. which are all delights. I I just do. It's so delights. It's just like kismet that this show has worked out the way it has, where the two of them 
didn't really know each other before they did the first season and have turned out to have just like amazing chemistry and are now really good friends. <laughs> so it's like good for them, good for us. What a good time. Good. A good time was had by all. Thanks, Neil. Okay. Have we said enough? I think so. We've, hope this no. I mean, write in, tell us, you know, your <laughs> thoughts about all the things. I have hope we, we have anything? satisfied the people who are were waiting for this Good Omens episode. It was just as fun for us to do as hopefully it will be for people to listen to. But we do want to hear everyone's takes on yes. Good Omens and Our Flag Means Death and hell, Leverage and Loki too. If anyone yeah. watches those, but it's been a, it's been a treat. Really, really mm-hmm. happy to have finally mm-hmm. had time to revisit these shows. And really happy that, you know, we're finally getting some really good queer canon. It's really good queer canon. And it's interesting to me that it is all, like, just middle-aged dudes in the That's queer true. canon. <laughs> it is. Not a, not a young man among them. <laughs> but, you know, maybe that's that's what people want. People love white middle-aged dudes and also Taika Waititi. <laughs> middle-aged but not white yeah. so what are we talking about next time next time we are talking about another listener request we got an i think a relatively early request for this one and a yes. recent request yes. for this one so we'll be talking about due south which is a procedural from the mid 90s early 90s i believe that's right somewhere in the 90s a canadian show about a mountie and a chicago detective teamed up i'm very delighted to do this episode i cannot Mm -hmm. wait that will be out in march 2024 so until then please do write to us with all of your you know even if you're just like keyboard smashing about good omens we want to hear it let us know your thoughts about all of these ships if you have comments questions or concerns you can email us at ltbkpod at gmail.com and find us on twitter and tumblr at LTBK Pod. If you're enjoying the podcast, leave us a review. Tell a friend. Subscribe. You know the things to do. And we will catch you again in March 24 with Do South.